0: Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man, who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who? Ultra Boy and Mister Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom, Stranger, Etric and Arisia and Woozy Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's
1: Who. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Who's Who Update 87, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from Firestormfan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine. Folks, welcome back, you Who's Whoers. How you doing, Rob? This is
2: the same show.
1: I don't know why you're insisting on
2: acting like this is a different show. It's this the is same a, show. This is a brand new show. This is episode one. Dot matrix pattern, Sir Prince. It's it's the same show. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's the same show.
1: All new, not really very different. <sighs> yeah. All new. All right. Give it. Just give it to me, please. All right. Okay. I'm just. I am so excited to be covering this because you know we talked about the old Who's Who series for. Twenty-eight episodes for a twenty-six series issue series. We had a lot of fun with it, but dude, this this is just so much joy for me. Like, th- this is eighty-seven. This is my favorite year of DC publishing. I don't know if I ever told you that or not. No. Out of all the years, this is the one.
2: Listen to the, listen to this lineup. Sonic of, Disruptors, well, right? That's what it was.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, but any well, besides that, thanks for taking away the big you know point of my discussion. You're
2: in stock trades, <laughs>
1: <laughs> But the uh, think about it. Here, here's the year. Uh, of all of these books launched in '87, okay, Justice League, the Doctor Fate miniseries, the Amethyst ongoing, Suicide Squad, Checkmate, Doom Patrol, Green Arrow, uh, Longbow Hunters, and the ongoing Young All Stars, Flash, the World of Krypton, and Smallville, m- Millennium, um, and Who's Who update '87. All of those 80 were in '87. Plus, you know, Green, uh, uh, the blue, blue Beetle, Booster Gold, we're all still going. I love this era of DC Comics man. So, I am excited to be doing this. I'm I'm totally jazzed about this. Great. Wow. You you you're like a dead fish. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, um we are back for another exciting episode of the show and uh you know, we'll let's do the stock traits then we'll talk a little bit about the book and some of the history and stuff like that. Okay. So, folks, uh This episode of the Who's Who podcast – actually, it's Who's Who Update 87 podcast – is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collector editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got?
2: Uh, Based on one of the pieces in this book, which is uh, by Alan Davis, one of my all-time favorite pieces of Who's Who art, I'm recommending Legends of the Dark Knight Alan Davis Hardcover Volume 1 – Because this reprints Detective Comics 569 through 575, which were drawn by Alan Davis and written by Mike W. Barr. And they are some of my favorite Batman comics ever. And I was so frustrated that this run ended in just eight issues. Because I think this is some of the best Batman ever done. And uh, if you have not read these, they are... They're just to me. They're just perfect. Every issue, Mike W. Barr to me just ex- extolled what was great about Batman, made it a little modern, and then of course brought to life by Alan Davis. So it is great. It also features Batman Full Circle number one and a story from Batman Gotham Knights number twenty five. Two hundred seventy two pages. Normal price thirty nine ninety nine. In stock trades price is twenty three nineteen. That is forty two percent off. The cover is gorgeous. You've got Catwoman standing on the back of Joker's car, whipping Batman with her cat in nine tails while the Joker laughs. Perfect, perfect Batman stuff.
1: Cool. Now is that uh, is that Batman New Adventures or whatever it was called at that time? No, it's, it was just uh, no. This is oh, well, well, Batman. Batman had a, like a. It was, I mean, it was the Batman book, but it carried a subtitle for a while. Like the Well, this New was, Ad- was, well no, this was Detective Comics. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, So What I just Go said on. thirty seconds ago. So I, again, I don't listen to most of what you say. I know uh, that. So, all right. Well, folks, I picked another character also um, that's apropos for this uh, episode. It is Blue Beetle. Now, we've probably plugged this book before, but you know, it's worth it. Showcase presents Blue Beetle trade paperback, written by Len Ween and Joey Cavallari, uh, art by Paris Collins and other folks. And uh, this collects the entire Blue Beetle series, issues 1 through 24. And Astonishingly, not only is Blue Beetle in this issue of who's who, there's a lot of other Blue Beetle characters that made their way into this, this update issue. So you're, we're going to touch on these a lot as we go through. If you want to learn more about these characters, pick this up. It's 584 pages in black and white. goes for 19 99 Normally, you can get it in stock trades for 42% off, $11.59. you got to love Paris Collins. You're going to get to see his clean pencils and inks, you know, without the color getting in the way. It's good. It's got a beautiful cover. It's great stuff. So pick those up. Again, folks, uh, for all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right. So, brand new podcast, man. This is crazy. Like, we're not even sure how to do this. <laughs> All right, so today folks, we're going to be covering Volume 1 of Who's Who Update 87 No more new Roman numerals For those of you who lost sleep at night Trying to figure out what issue was what That's over, you don't have to worry about that anymore This was a 5 issue mini-series And uh, it it came out, according to Mike's Amazing World DC Comics, it was released On May 5th, 1987 So jump in your Wayback Machine And hop back there to May 5th, 1987 And pick yourself up a brand new copy And cover dated August 87 Now if you're wondering the time period in between the first volume, Who's Who, and when this one picks up is four months. So there's been four, only four months have passed since issue 26 came out, which is about how long ago we did that episode, I think, really. <laughs> and if this happens to be your first episode of Who's Who, it might be, because it's an episode number one. Here's a little bit of information about the series. Um, Most of the characters in the the book will receive a full page entry. In the foreground will be the character in full color with their logo. And in the background is going to be a single color, what's called a surprint, depicting either the origin or some aspect of the character, along with a close-up of their face without their mask. You're also going to get text pieces, which features their personal data, like height, weight, all that jazz, history, powers, and weapons. And ultimately, our goal is to discuss these in such a way that you don't need to have the comic in front of you. And we're going to post... About ten or fifteen of them on our Tumblr. Rob, can you tell the folks at home what our Tumblr is? Fire and Water com. You know, you did that really well. Like it like it's not even your first time. So um, folks, if you want to talk this about talk about this on the social medias, and let me tell you, lots of people do, um, please use the hashtag FWpodcast. That will help other folks find you uh, find your comments. We can all get involved and tell you why you're wrong. So it would be fantastic. Now, just a quick observation. Robin. As I was going through this, thinking about it, you know, with the updates, you, you don't get as many mainstay characters of the DC universe, sure, because because they were already covered in the first volume. But I kind of wonder, like, this issue's got Batman in it, um, so I was kind of wondering if they sort of like intentionally revise the entries of certain characters of some of the big guns just to help boost the sales a little bit. They figure, you know, Batman hasn't really changed that much, so but we'll throw some updates in there just so he gets in the issue. I don't know.
2: Well, I, we'll get to the reasons why I think Batman's in this when we, when we get to that list.
1: Okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, with that, I think we're just going to go ahead and start talking about the cover. All right, folks. This cover is by Joe Brosowski and Dick Giordano. Cover price is 125 pennies. But for you and Ciscoid, it's 175 Canadian weird little coins. Terribly sorry about that. And um, Anyway, so I, did, did I say Joe Brosowski and Dick Giordano? I don't no, you, remember. Not yet. Okay, so cover by Joe Brzezowski, Dick Giordano. And uh, it, it's of the similar Who's Who vein. Uh, this is, I believe this is Joe's first cover. But you've got all the characters sort of in a non-logical setting, interacting to some. Rob, why don't you point out some of your favorite things, and then I'll talk about the, the cover.
2: Uh, my favorite part of this, really, is the fact that uh, Batman is on it, but he is not the main character. Okay. Now, of course, they did that because he'd already gotten the main cover back in Who's Who Volume 2. Um, but uh, – so, so they give it to Booster Gold, which is only appropriate because he was pretty much the biggest new character to be listed in the book. But I just find it charming that at one point DC Comics actually chose to not feature Batman when they could.
1: Uh, he's still in the front half though.
2: Well, right. But, but, I mean, he's, <laughs> but he's tiny. I mean this is, this is less than two years away from the Batman movie, which at that point DC would never do that again. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, DC finds a way to stick Batman Hey, look the Superman Family Showcase Let's put Batman on the cover Because it's <laughs> Batman So this is probably quite literally the last time DC Comics would ever do such a thing to Batman
1: How funny And you know, Booster Gold is sort of like the poster child for the updates He really is um, You know what, I forgot to prepare for this episode What we'll have to talk about in the next episode Is there, There's an ad for Update 87, which is a lot of fun. You know, we'll, we'll throw that in the next show. We'll talk a little bit about it. But, it, you know, Booster Gold is featured very prominently in the ad as well because he is sort of the, the poster child for the updates. is kind of makes the most sense. So um, I think that's funny that you like Batman. Now, I would say also, um, in addition to Blue Be- um, Booster Gold, I would say Blue Beetle and Batgirl also show the cover.
2: Yes. yes.
1: As, as prominent characters. So Some fun things on here. You get um, all the bad guys, for some reason, are hanging out on Brimstone which is funny because you know he's on fire, so they must all be burning to death, which is fine. They're bad guys. I like Black Mace is trying to beat Bizarro over the head with that's, his
2: mace. I love that bit, yeah. He's
1: actually breaking his mace. Uh, Caress and Catalyst are sort of they're either facing off or teaming up. I can't tell qu- quite which one or the other. But both of them have touch cr- uh, powers, which is kind of a nice uh, melding there. Then you get Bloodsport uh, and Amazing Grace off to the side together, which, if you think about it, they're Superman-related characters. So. And then uh, up in the top left-hand corner, you get Spitfire with No Sign of the Troubleshooters. So I'm not sure what that's doing. There. Um, talk more about that later. It's, uh, so in general, the cover's nice. It's not spectacular. Um, no, Joe, it's not. Joe Brozowski was a good house artist for the 1980s. For DC, uh, he did Firestorm, for, you know, for several years, um, and have Dick Giordano over him certainly, you know, cleans it up even more so. But it's you know, it's fine. It's it's not like wow, this is the greatest cover ever, but it's enjoyable. And Booster really does sell it. I mean, Booster looks so happy on the cover; he's f- woo, flying in, his arms are spread, and it's just like, "Look, I'm here," you know. So I, I dig it. Enjoy. I, it
2: quite I think fun. my other favorite bit is Batman again with Batman. He's got his leg up on Baron Tyranno's oxygen tank, which is just <laughs> rude. I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, what the hell. <laughs> it's like, <"Bam-> <laughs> the thing that's keeping him alive. Could you get your boot off my air hose, please? Right.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. Absolutely great. All right. Well, then uh, let's go ahead and get into this. So on the inside cover, you've got a sort of little editorial piece by Bob Greenberger. It talks about how him and Peter Sanderson have collected every single piece of feedback and correction from who, all the Who's Who letters, and they used that to do the appendix last issue uh, in issue 26, and they're going to use it going forward to help with the update. So that's pretty cool that they were doing that. Uh, sort of like what we do, I guess, suppose, huh? They also mentioned that there's going to be a new Who's Who update every summer. And then during the year, they're going to focus on specials like uh, Who's Who in the Legion and things like that. So pretty exciting. Then you get this other thing um, called the Weapons Check on this inside cover, and it's got a little featurette on Blue Beetle's gun and a featurette on Booster Gold's equipment. So that's kind of cool. That's new. One of the things also to note here, as you go through it, under the Who's Who listing, you know, the editors and writers and stuff like that, Booster Gold is a prominent character in this, and yet... Dan Juergens is not credited as a contributing writer. I don't think he got to write the booster entry until it got to the loose leaf edition, if I remember right. So, Hmm. poor Dan. So, all right, getting into it, we start off with a very strange, I think possibly the only time we've ever seen this in any edition of Who's Who. We get a three-page entry, which is one continuous piece of text. So the very first page is dedicated to the Young All-Stars, and in a second, we're going to flip it, and it's going to be a two-page spread of the All-Star Squadron. And yet it's one long, continuous text piece. I don't think they've ever done that before, have they?
2: Uh, I don't think so. It's pretty, pretty awkward.
1: It is strange. So, Young All-Stars, if you're not familiar with them, the, the team is composed of Dan the Dynamite, or he, by this point, he's just going by Dynamite, uh, Flying Fox, Fury, Iron Monroe, Neptune Perkins, and Tsunami. Art on this is by Howard Simpson and Malcolm Jones the I assume Malcolm Jones III, it actually has the number 3 and then RD after, it's unusual. Um, I I enjoyed the Young All-Stars team quite a bit. I I love anytime there's a new era or a new generation or a new beginning, sort of like this episode of the podcast. And so I I really got into the Young All-Stars, really enjoyed them as a team. And if you don't know the, the real history behind them, what happened was at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, all the Golden Age duplicates, characters, if you will, like Superman, Clark Client, uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne, Wonder Woman, Diana Prince, all of them got wiped away. They didn't exist in um, the World War II era anymore, and they were reserved for the quote-unquote quote, modern era. So Roy Thomas, when he was doing All-Star Squadron, wanted to plug the holes, essentially, in those stories where Superman may have saved the day, or Batman may have saved the day, or whatever. So he's created this team. So you get, as I mentioned, Iron Man Roe. Well, he's an, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not analogy. Surrogate. Okay, that's even better than the one I was working for. He's a surrogate for Superman. You get Fury, who's a surrogate for Wonder Woman. You get Flying Fox, who's a surrogate for Batman. You get Neptune Perkins, who's a surrogate for Aquaman. And then I started wondering, getting ready for this, I wonder if Dan, the dynamite, is a little bit of a surrogate for Robin, maybe? I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I think so.
1: Okay. And um, overall, I I, enjoyed, I think the art in this piece is, is decent. Uh, specifically, the little headshots along the left-hand side. I think Dynamite looks great. Flying Fox looks great. And Tsunami looks great. The other characters, not as much. Uh, It almost seemed like maybe those were the characters that he had the best handle on. I mean, Tsunami, first entry in the book here, folks. You know what I'm about to say. Tsunami is smoking hot. I'm sorry, she totally is. And um, he did a great job on that character. And now Howard Simpson also drew the Young All Stars uh, book, so he was a great you know choice for this book. Before we, for this entry, I mean, before we go into the All Star one, do you have anything you want to say about the Young All Stars?
2: No, not really. Uh, I tried to get into that book because I loved ulcer Squadron. Squadron. I have every issue of it, and I love Roy Thomas on any sort of Earth-2 thing. And so I was on board for a little while. I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot, but I just it just couldn't hold my interest. So this was one of those ones where I remember opening the page. I was like, eh, really? These guys? Okay.
1: <laughs> it got weird. It really did, because uh, he started bringing in every literal connection he could. I mean, you and I have talked about before how Roy has an interest in bringing the literal connections, like how he's connecting Aquaman to various Golden Age Aquaman to, to various stuff. When he in the here in this book, he brought in Frankenstein and a lot of stuff like that. Now, one of the things I liked about Iron Monroe individually was that he was based on the Gladiator novel from the '30s by Philip Wiley. if I remember it I off the Think so, back? yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of I mean, Actually, reading this comic drove me to go find a copy of that book in the library and read it. So it made me read a real book. Look at that wow. one. It's in everything. So then we're going to flip the page onto All Star Squadron, a big kapow moment. Again, uh, drawn by Howard Simpson, but this time inked by Danny Boulandi, maybe? Yeah, Danny Boulandi. There it is. That's a, that's a fun rhyming name, isn't it? So, <laughs> and this is our first revised entry. That's a new thing they're doing with this volume, is where they have a an entry or a character that was featured previously, they slap a revised logo on it if those characters um, are being presented again and all star squadron was definitely deserving of another entry simply because so much of their history was rewritten with the removal of you know, so many golden age characters for the modern age or two ones it's, It definitely merits being mentioned here so uh, it 's it's a great shot it 's a huge, huge, huge team shot in the, in the center black um, i 've almost called her black canary Liberty Bell is calling the team. To like a meeting, to like action. So all the teams swooping in from various directions on the left and right hand side. You've got the traditional little tiny heads of all the characters in the team, and there's so many of these little heads. It's awesome, and uh, it's a very Perez layout. But you know, under Simpsons pencils, it's the drawing's fine. It, it's pretty good actually. It, it's not probably the problem is uh, the the previous volume it was um, uh, Ordway, you know, Jerry the mm, Extraordinary. Oh yeah. So I mean. It's kind of hard to compete with that.
2: So, well, he had a lot less characters to draw, so he got to put them in, a, in an exciting action pose.
1: You know, that's a valid point. That's a very valid point. Okay, all right. Um, there's a there's an interesting comment in here, too, talking about the All-Star Squadron, talking about um, all known members of the All-Star Squadron are depicted and listed here. That's a very definitive statement. <laughs> I guess they were trying. That's That's their way of saying, by the way, all those Golden Age characters are gone, but without having to say it. I don't know. Yeah. So what's your, who's your favorite, like, little shot here or character shown up here? Uh,
2: I like the idea that all the heads are straightforward except for little Sa- uh, Uncle Sam, whose profile. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, for some reason. I guess I wanted to show off his little goatee. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I think this is just kind of a boring shot, but it kind of has to be just because there's so many people. Yeah. Um, I guess my favorite bit in the way back mm-hmm. is Midnight, and he is, like, flinching from somebody. I don't know what. He's kind of like, ugh. And I don't know what, who he's flinching for. So I, I kind of like that just because most of the uh, – you know, all these poses, everybody's just sort of standing around. Right. But he's the only one kind of doing some action. And then the other thing I think about is Plastic Man is a member, yep. and Plastic Man is also on Earth-1. So there really should have been a demarcation between Earth-2 Plastic Man and Earth-1 Plastic Man. But DC never bothered to do that. They never wiped <laughs> him out of continuity.
1: Well, outside of the crazy Haney Zaney Haney stories, was he really on Earth one though?
2: Yeah, yeah, the current version, sure. The one that was appearing like in Adventure Comics and teaming up with Superman and stuff oh, like that. Okay,
1: yeah, 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 all right, fair enough. All right, interesting. I guess it's sort of like a, uh, you know, Green Arrow and Aquaman where they're. Well, Green Arrow had a specific. Never, no, we're not going to have that fight again. Never mind. No, yeah. uh, I like Firebrand. I think she looks great flying in with the with the flaming around her, and you get Doctor Fate and everything. There's some interesting little things too, where you get, you know, um, Wing and um, Tiger shaking hands, the two sidekicks. You get um, what? Well, There's a couple other things. You know, I like how they took all the young All Stars and hid them in the back, which just, you know makes sense because they were on the previous page. You know. So, in general, you're right. It's a little boring, but I still think there's enough motion and interaction here to make it interesting. I like it. And Tarantula stands out like a sore thumb for having a suit that doesn't look anything like the 80s. So. All right. Um, by the way, I should have mentioned earlier, um, if you want to learn more about the All-Star Squadron, please check out the Tales of the JSA podcast with our good friend Michael Bailey and uh, good friend Scott Gardner. They do a great job on that show, and they focus on... the um, the All-Star Squadron and JSA. So perfect place to get more on those characters. Next up is Amazing Grace. Uh, she is drawn by John Byrne. She's a fairly new character at this point from Superman issue number three. And it, just to give you some perspective, Superman at this point when this comic hit the stands was only on issue number eight. So this is a fairly recent addition to the uh, DC Universe. And she's, well, okay, I'll just say it. She's totally hot, obviously. it's Byrne's. Over
2: the shoulder boulder holder.
1: It's Byrne drawing a very uh, sexy yet big boned isn't the right word. What what am I saying? She's just she's pneumatic. She, wow, look at you. Okay. So she's a sexy pneumatic woman. So and Byrne's done a great job here. Now there's um really there's a lot of hints here of Byrne's love for the fourth world because he got to create essentially, was it it's Desaad's sister, right?
2: I think no, so. No, no, it's Glorious Godfrey's sister. All right, right, okay, yeah.
1: So he got to create Glorious Godfrey's sister here. So, I mean, you know, Byrne loves the fourth world. And it, it's she's a lot like Glorious Godfrey, but from the other persuasion, you know, woman seducing men. And uh, the entry's full of that, where she's, you know, sort of seducing Superman. And the entry has a lot of what I don't like. Being new to the show, being a brand new show, you guys probably don't know this, but I'm not a big fan of Who's Who entries where they go, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. I like just to hear about the character. This is one of those, this happened, this happened, this happened, but it's probably because the character's only five months old. It's kind of hard to avoid that, you know? So, it, it's a beautiful piece. The text isn't my favorite, but um, it's, you know, it's nice. You got nothing? Not really. I don't, Did you, I, do you ever read this
2: thing? I Yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> The hell's the matter with you? Yes. Uh no, I just don't have a lot. Li- I was never a huge fourth world guy. I never really those issues of uh Burn Superman, which I loved at the time. Okay. The, the ones with Dark Side were my least favorite. And so these characters just kind of like, alright, I mean it's I like that she's listed as Marital Status, presumed single. <laughs> kind of kind of a pejorative, and considering those boobs, I don't think she's presumably single. Uh <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's perfectly fine, and I love John Byrne's work, especially from the '80s. But this character just—just was just, like, okay, whatever.
1: <laughs> well, Darkside, she, she, Darkside sort of used her to get in with uh, the Hunger Dogs to basically convince them to revolt and then crush their spirit, which is a pretty cool idea. So, uh, neat addition to the to the pantheon. I don't know if she's really been around all that much, but I like her logo. Very cool, very fancy, sort of old English style. You know, uh, yep. text. Yep. Up next, uh, by the way, if you want to hear more about Amazing Grace or this era of Superman, check out the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which is hosted by that Michael Bailey guy. He's getting more time on this show than he deserves. Anyway, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, uh, covering all the post-crisis Superman stuff. What are you laughing at?
2: I recorded an episode with him about Batman. I think about nineteen years ago, and it has not yet aired. So. <laughs>
1: He's got stuff dusted. He's got stuff layered in dust. That we had. didn't
2: even know what podcasts were. He was
1: just like, right. let's just talk and I'll record it. I'm like, okay, whatever, Mike. What is this recording device? Is that a phonograph? I have no right. idea what's going on. Uh, next character is Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Another revised entry. This time by Keith Giffen and Bob Smith. Now, Giffen's a good choice because he got very involved with the Amethyst world. Once um, Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin and uh, Ernie Colon had sort of moved off the series, uh, Keith was kind of the go-to Amethyst guy. And she in the drawing, she looks uh, much older than she did previously. She doesn't look like young Amy anymore, and she's wearing sort of like an all-purple bodysuit and uh, some, you know, gold accoutrements and stuff and beautiful blonde face. But she used to look like maybe, you know, a 19, 20-year-old girl. This girl looks to be like 27, 28. So one of the big changes since last time we've seen Amethyst is she has found out that her origin was a lie. turns out that her father was actually one of the Lords of Order. <laughs> Is she is she her own mother, and her brain was transferred (laughs) into? Is that what happened? Something like that. It's Giffen, so Um, yeah. So so her dad's actually turns out uh, he is the king of Gemworld, but he prior to that he was a Lord of Order who took human form. So he was there to battle the agents of chaos, and turns out Dark Opal's an agent of chaos, or was working for chaos, one or the other. And so the father sires a daughter, you know, with with a human. So Amethyst is the first Lord of Order born in human form. And uh, it turns out she got blinded during the crisis, and then by this point she had been absorbed into Gemworld. And um, as far as I know, this is a period of amethyst that nobody celebrates. So, I could be wrong. But I I love Keith Geffen. I love the Lords of Order, but I think maybe he was a little too focused on them. You know, like, he he drew uh, those Doctor Fate stories when the Lords of Order really kind of first came into play in the back of the Flash issues. And then, I guess because he couldn't draw Dr. Fate. He went over to Amethyst and brought that stuff over there. I don't know. Uh, but eventually they give him Dr. Fate, and he can get that out of his system. So, All right. If you want to hear more about Amethyst, you can um, read Wikipedia. All right. Next up is Ares. This is uh, Ares, the god of war, uh, from the Wonder Woman series drawn by George Perez, and this is a stunning detailed piece. He's there in his all dark sort of cobalt armor, and uh, just do the the mask that covers his face completely with, like, horns coming out of the the mask piece and the the bristly brush on top and just armor Every You know, it's a really detailed Perez-armored sort of work. It is gorgeous. And the background's got a red surprint, and you see a close-up of the face, which which is fun because normally you see in the background a close-up of the face without the mask. Well, he's still got the helmet on in the back, which is hysterical. And you see Wonder Woman, and you see what looks like Mount Olympus and stuff. And um, the red surprint was a great choice for Ares. I mean, because, you know... Aries is usually sort of associated with Mars. I realize it's Roman gods, but still red the red planets. So red's a perfect choice for war as well. Uh, a lot of stuff about Greek mythology and the origin. That I, I didn't know this because I didn't read Perez's Wonder Woman, but apparently the tournament they had on Paradise Island or Themyscira to choose the new representative to go to uh, America or the man's world, whatever you want to call it, was because they knew Mars was coming. Are not Mars, Ares, they knew Ares was coming, and so they had to prepare for it, so they wanted to pick a champion. So that's what caused the whole tournament in Perez's run. I had no idea. So that's how Diana won the tournament. And worth noting, he has a son named Deimos, who I wish was the character from Warlord. Okay. Now you read this era, right? Yeah, I did. So, like, I, I know nothing about this character's personality. Is he, like, a total boss when he shows up? Is it, like, oh my gosh, dark side level, or is it...
2: Yeah, kinda. Yeah, he was. I mean, he, I, again, I... This part of Wonder Woman I was less interested in was more I, I I liked Wonder Woman and the Man's
1: World as opposed to this stuff. But yeah, she yeah he was the Darth Vader of this series. Sure. Oh wow. Okay. That's kind of what I always suspected. But and his logo's a little weak.
2: I you know I like this. It's George Perez, and how do you not like it? But there's a lot of dead space to me, and that's like his figure could be a lot bigger. That's the only that's part true. of this I don't like.
1: That's true. Now it could be. Maybe he, well, no, because it could. I don't know. I don't have any excuses for that one. Hmm. All right. Um, If you want to hear more about Ares, you can, oh, never mind. Frank doesn't have a Wonder Woman podcast. Uh, Coming up next is Aresia. That's how I say it, at least. If we had a uh, glossary in the front, we'd be able to figure that out. Drawn by Joe Staten. Yep. Joe Staten drew this. He sure did. This is during (laughs) not my favorite era of Joe Staten. Um, this is the era when he was drawing Green Lantern Corps with the same sort of style he would use on his Guy Gardner book when he was drawing Millennium. It's, I'm not a fan. Sorry. No, this I, is
2: not one of his better, best pieces. Certainly not. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Joe but this one is not one of his better ones.
1: Yeah. Uh, now I've complimented lots of his work in Who's Who. So. Yeah. Uh, the Can't front, all be winners the, the figure is Aresia, she is an alien, sort of elfin looking alien Who's a member of the Green Lantern Corps She's wearing like a white bustier and a green little mini skirt Which, by the way, when it's cosplayed is totally hot um, Just not in this drawing um, So the surprint is lots of different shots of her as a Green Lantern Her fighting some aliens Her kissing up on Hal Jordan, which we'll talk about in a minute And then a creepy skull face Is that supposed to be Necron or something? Yeah, I think so Okay just redunculous looking. You know, Necron, uh, give, whether you like Blackest Night or not, at least they redeem the look of Necron in that series. Man. Um, so here's the deal with Aresia. She was a teenager who became a Green Lantern. She, if I remember right, I think her family had a legacy of being Green Lanterns, so or that might have been introduced later. I don't recall. Anyway, and so she was a teenage Green Lantern, and she had a crush on Hal Jordan. And Hal's like, sorry, kid, you know, give me a call in about 15 years. And, you know, Which is a kind of un Jordan-like Behavior <laughs> Oh wait, <laughs> don't worry So she I don't remember if it's unintentional Or whatever, the ring Ends up aging her with her desire to be an adult, the, a, the ring actually ages her to, like, you know, in her 20s-ish, or at least 18-plus, so it's not illegal anymore. And she becomes, you know, a quote-unquote adult. So then her and Hal get trapped in a cave together, and he's like, hey, baby, you know this works for me now. And they become a couple. He is knocking boots with, like, a 12- or 14-year-old in an adult's body. It's just weird. It's not good. Not right. It's, um, it's one of those, like, when Wizard Magazine would print, like, you know, articles on, like, you know, you can't believe this actually happened. This probably would be one of those things. <laughs> Dear Green
2: Lantern Forum.
1: I never thought it would happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in regard to the family line of, of Green Lanterns, she uh, – I can't remember where – there was a great story about – her family line of Green Lanterns. And I can't remember whether it was in, like, a Green Lantern Quarterly. I'm pretty sure it was in the Green Lantern Emerald Knights movie, which, by the way, if you've never seen the Green Lantern, the animated movie, Green Green Lantern Emerald Knights, I recommend it. It's very good. It's all these little vignettes about various Green Lanterns. Um, Very enjoyable. Much better, like, if you hated the movie or just watch the animated thing. Green Lantern Emerald Knights. It's really good. And then um, this was also during the period when the core was, like, seven Green Lanterns that lived on Earth in a funky house. And she was apparently responsible for redesigning all their uniforms because she's 14. So. if you want to learn more about Aresia and this creepy, creepy relationship, uh, check out the lantern cast with our buddy Little Child Buckelman, or with Sean Engels, just one of the guys. So he he covered he doesn't necessarily cover Aresia, but he does cover Green Lantern-related stuff. So all right. Up next is Artemis, who is a member of Injustice Unlimited, which you might imagine, is a team that fights Infinity Incorporated, because that would just make sense if they did that. Now, here's the interesting thing about uh, Artemis. She is the daughter of Sportsmaster and Huntress, so she is a cool legacy character, and that sort of makes sense, because you know when you're fighting Infinity, Inc., they're all legacy characters, so why not have a legacy villain? She's a, a very clever creation, and her grandmother is Tigress, who was just mentioned a few pages ago on The Young All-Stars. Um, let's see. Uh, she fought Infinity Inc. she fought the Global Guardians there's a nice little mention in here reminder if you'd forgotten that Solomon Grundy was uh, crushing on Jade for a while in Infinity Inc. it's kind of fun but probably um, in addition to being the child of these you know villains an even more interesting thing and I don't know if you know this or not Rob but Artemis has found her way into um, other media she is was loosely adapted into the Young Justice cartoon as one of the members of the team
2: oh that's right okay yeah
1: yeah I always thought that she was uh, the Artemis the the Archer on Young Justice was simply just sort of a a redoing of maybe Arrowette or Speedy and they just did their own version and then I completely forgot about this version of Artemis being part of the DC universe that is the daughter of Sportsmaster and Huntress. So um worked out I mean or was it Tigress or Huntress I forget it's a uh, hunt oh, the 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 bad person huntress anyway yes. Um, So, you know, it's a really nice, uh, they they look nothing alike, I don't know that they necessarily act alike, but um, that is, that's a big deal, where the character made it into Young Justice. Now, here's the big thing that Rob's gonna, you know, the the thing I'm sure Rob wants to talk about. The art in this entry is by (laughs) Todd McFarlane and Al Gordon. Now, personally, I kind of like Todd McFarlane's 80s stuff, especially his amazing Spider-Man issues. Not necessarily Spider-Man, but amazing Spider-Man. And I love Al Gordon as an inker. This, though, has got some physics-defying hair and anatomy-defying legs. So, Ron, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this piece.
2: All hat, no cattle with Todd McFarlane. <laughs> I love it, but I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it just means it's, it's all style, no substance. I, okay. I, I, yeah, I look at this, I'm like, this is terrible. This is just terrible, but he managed to fool people into thinking that he was talented. So, good for him. You know, he built a career. He's, he's he's super mega rich, so good for him. But I, I look at this artwork and I'm like, ugh.
1: Her thighs are bigger than her head. You got an armadillo in her trousers. I mean, this is just it's just, <laughs> it's just it's just ridiculous. But I like sort of the creepy old grandma tigress in the background. You know, and Sportsmaster uh, looks pretty cool down at the bottom. Okay. And her her hair is. Just, I mean, I guess when he just uh, he doesn't have a cape to draw, he has to draw something along their back that just is enormous. <laughs> uh huh. Uh, okay. Yep. If you want to hear, again, Artemis, check out um, Tales of the JSA for more uh, infinity sort of type coverage. I don't know. I don't think they've gotten that far yet, but they will eventually. So, All right. Next up is Atmos, who is uh, a, a sort of friend of the Legion of Superheroes. Art by Greg LaRock and Mike DiCarlo. Weird, weird, weird-looking character. Now, I'm, I am a member of the Legion of Superbloggers, which, by the way, if you want to know more about the Legion, you should check out Legion of Superbloggers. And I've never even heard of this guy like i don't even I don't even remember reading about him and who's who he's wearing like a silver body suit and he's got like atomic symbols around his hands um and he's got a big red mohawk, but the weird thing is his chest is like it has like little cuts out of it like it's, it's, I, maybe you can describe this better than me, but his uh his ribs have like Gouges out of them is how would you describe
2: it? Well, he's, yeah, I think he's he's it appears he's missing his like breast muscles, like his latissimus and stuff. It's the stuff on his it's really the back muscles that are missing. His rib cage is there, but it's sort of like the
1: the, the muscles on the sides and the back that are sort of been carved out. Yeah, so um, imagine Slipknot' his costume where he's got like this, the, what they'd call side boob kind of like open. It just cut that off the flesh. Maybe another way to say it. So very strange. So, um, the deal with him is he was one of the heroes of Xanthru, and, uh, when he originally came on the scene, he had powers very much like Starboy's original powers, which are essentially Kryptonian powers, and, uh... He, again, it was kind of Superman-like powers. Flight, strong, invulnerability, blast, things like that. So he starts off as a hero, gets wrapped up in this thing called the Universo Project. If you know anything about your Legion history, Universo is bad news. Then he starts hooking up with Dream Girl, which uh, is interesting because she was Starman's squeeze, or Starboy's squeeze. So it's kind of interesting, you know, the parallels there of being from the same planet. um, You know, hooking up with the same girl, same powers, all this stuff. And eventually... um, Somehow through the Universal Project, I guess he turns evil. It's not entirely clear on this, but it, 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 they not, things aren't good there. And eventually Starboy returns to be the hero over uh, back of the home planet. So, the art's fine. Uh, again, it's just kind of a weird character. He's very much in a, you know, spread your legs as far as you possibly can, and spread your arms as far as you can, and since you have a mohawk, you have to, you have to scream kind of pose.
2: I have power!
1: <laughs> lots and lots and lots of Kirby Dots in the Surprint, which are used effectively because they're actually Kirby Dots connecting with Kirby Dots in the Serpent connecting his hands, which is pretty cool. That
2: is officially He's... called Kirby Crackle.
1: Oh, Kirby Crackle. Nice, nice. I like that. I've heard that. I just never knew that there was an official term for that. Okay. Um, you can see various things in the background. You see him blasting some folks. You see uh, a shot of his face. You see a beautiful dream girl because she's crazy hot. And um, I, think, I think we've got enough there unless you want to say something. Not particularly. Right. And Greg, Greg Larock's a lot. By the way, I haven't really necessarily said it, but all these artists so far have made logical sense. Greg, Greg Larock drew Legion, uh, Tommy Farland, drew Infinity Inc. Or, you know, Joe Staten drew Green Lantern, George Prez, drew Ares. I mean, drew Wonder Woman. So I mean, all those artists make sense. When one doesn't make sense, well, we'll let you know. All right. Up next, Axis America, America with an exclamation point. These are foes of the Young All Stars, and the art is by Brian Murray. Now. Um, it's, it, I'll talk about the art first, and then we'll get into the characters. It is a, a team of Nazi supervillains that fought the All-Star Squadron, Young All-Stars, um, specifically Young All-Stars. And the team is made up of Flendermouse, Gudra, Horned Owl, Seawolf, Ubermensch, and Yusil. And these are all... Um, what, what was the term you used earlier? What? I don't They're point. parallels... Uh, surrogates. Surrogates, thank you. They're surrogates for the Justice League, basically. Uh, Ubermensch is Superman... Horned Owl and Flater Mouse are Batman and Robin. Um, and by the way, they're also parallels to the Young all Stars. So again, Ubermatch, I mentioned Superman. Well, he's also a good match for Iron Monroe. Horned Owl and Mouse is a match for Batman and Robin, which is also a good match for Flying Fox. Gudra is a match for Wonder Woman, which is a match for Fury. Seawolf is a match for Aquaman, which is a match for Neptune Perkins. And Usel is a match for Green Arrow, who hasn't joined the Young All-Stars yet, apparently. So... Um, but yeah, they're, they're a Nazi superhero team or supervillain team that fights the young all stars. You gotta love Nazi bad guys. I mean, it, does, it doesn't get much better than that because the Nazis make the ultimate bad guys. So this is great. It's a nice art piece. In the foreground, you've got Übermensch standing like close to you. You're looking up at him on sort of a rocky ledge. So you, you're having to look up at these people, so they're acting very superior. All the characters are in sort of like actiony poses with a, you know, or, or actiony or just sort of like threatening stances. In the background, in the Surprint... Is the outline of what appears to be an American flag, except the stars have been replaced with a swastika, which is pretty creepy. The lighting is very dramatic. Um, I like the art piece. Are, are you familiar with Brian Murray?
2: Not really, uh, but I was going to say that this this is a, a great example of doing a lot with a little, because these are six morts. I mean, this these, <gasps> these guys are just completely mort characters. But Brian Murray simply by tilting the camera so you are looking up at them, makes this, to me, an interesting piece visually. Mm -hmm. Instead of just having them stand straight ahead, like in a proscenium style, he gives it a slightly ominous feeling with this underlighting. And uh, it feels like they're standing on the periphery of uh, when they open the arc at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with the sort of glowing light coming from beneath them. So Mm -hmm. he he really did a a superb job with what he was given. Because these are just not imposing characters. But uh,
1: he did a really, really nice job. And he's a great artist. Um, he, really, he did the covers of the original the Young All-Star issues that are just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Like the first six issues, I think each one featured a various Young All-Star character. And I looked him up just to see what he's done. Dude, I didn't realize. like He's got a really thorough bio out there. He's gone on to be a feature film digital concept illustrator. He's worked on CSI, Ugly Betty, Chronicles of Riddick, a lot of different stuff. Good so, for him. Yeah, good for him. Glad to see an artist who made it. Now here's a weird thing. I, I I searched the interwebs, and maybe you people at home can help because you're smarter than me and Rob um, combined. Uh, the character here, uh, Flatermouse, he looks to me to be darn near identical to a character who came around later in Bill Willingham's Shadow Pack and um... He was in Shadow Pack, the bag, this character I'm about to talk about. He was also in Robin, maybe? I can't remember. Anyway, the character was named Kid Carn Evil. So he started off in JSA as like a heroic new recruit for the team, sort of like a, a Robin character. Um, but then you find out, really, he's evil. And I mean evil. And he's got Nazi connections and stuff. I think it's the same character. But I couldn't find, and I seem to remember in the back of my head it was the same character, but I couldn't find anything on the interwebs about it, and I didn't have the wherewithal to pull out my old JSA issues. So, you at home, write in, let us know, please. All right, and again, Access America, Young All-Stars, Tales of the JSA. Could, could we, I'm going to stop talking about Michael Bailey. I'm just, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. So, um, it's making me feel dirty, like I need a shower or something. All right, Bad Samaritan. This, this one cracks me up. This is a dude in a suit, wearing sunglasses, smoking a cigarette. That's all it is. It's just a dude. And a very nondescript guy, on purpose. And in the surprint, you can see him talking to some various folks, and then you see the outsider sneaking up behind him, like, ready to attack. Basically, he is a super spy, bad guy, assassin kind of character. Um, he has a sensitivity to bright light, which is why he wears the sunglasses. But other than that, he's incredibly generic but in a good way. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, We had there was this other show called Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and uh, during that show, whenever there was an outsider's entry, we would comment on how little text there was. The outsider entries always have bare minimum text. Well, Bad Samaritan, being an outsider's villain, uh, by the way, drawn by the amazing George, uh, Jim Aparo, yeah. this entry. Um, the, again, very little text out here for this character, because that's an outsider's character. I, it's funny, he, he's almost so nondescript and so generic, that I love him for that. Look, you could plug him into any story, I think, as long as it's a well-written story and make it work. So go ahead um, and please now rave about Jim Aparo's art.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, this is an incredibly boring character visually, but it's Jim Aparo, and he gives it a real life to it. I love the dark shadows that he, that he uh, puts in on the guy's suit. It's, it. it's a really nice-looking drawing of a very boring character.
1: <laughs> you know what it, it puts me in mind of? It's like those old 60s magazine ads that were hand-drawn, of it'd be like he would be a great this guy would be great in one of those '60s ads for cigarettes or something. Oh, like absolutely, that. yeah. You know, like you know, even the best spy smokes Marlboro or something like that. You know, but he looks great. It's a great looking character. I I don't know if he ever appeared again, but uh, I would love to see him. So very cool. Um, you know, by the way, I haven't been mentioning. I've been uh, I've been sort of like keeping track of where books were at this point. You know, we talked a little bit about Infinity Inc. earlier. Uh, at this point, when this issue hit the stands, Infinity Inc. was on issue four. Uh, we also talked about Superman, I mentioned, was on issue number eight. Talked about Legion of Superheroes. They were on issue 37 of that Baxter series book at this point. And Young All-Stars was only on issue number three. Um, I did not write down what issue the Outsiders were on because nobody likes the Outsiders, apparently. So, Aww. They don't have a blog. They don't have a podcast. Other than Luke Ciaconetti standing up and going, I like the Outsiders. They got nothing, man. They got nothing. So, I look forward to Luke's eventual podcast on it. So. I just made that up. All right. Up next is Baron Tyrano. Great name. He has been around for a while. He goes all the way back to Green Lantern number 54, but he had just recently, at this point, reappeared in Green Lantern Corps, which is why he is back, uh, why he didn't get an entry the first time around, but he is here now. He's a billionaire who's uh, been paralyzed and is uh, really sits almost like Rob said in an iron lung. And he... In his original appearance, he lured Hal Jordan to his place and attacked him with this new missile, which just makes no sense. But he attacked him with this new missile that would actually split the personalities of Green Lantern and Hal Jordan into two different beings. I don't even know how that works, but whatever. And his plan was to take over the Green Lantern body. So it didn't quite work out for him. Got defeated, obviously. Then years later, he fights the Outsider. I'm sorry, fights uh, the Green Lantern Corps. And um, art here is by Joe Staton. And actually, I kind of like this piece. You have, uh, you know, in the foreground, you've got actually two images in color. You've got him in the Iron Lung, and then you've got a close-up of his face with the monocle. Then in the background, you've got, like, the robotic version of him punching Hal Jordan, socking him a good one. And then you see him, uh, him like, watching his big monitor screen that he stole from the Super Friends headquarters. And then you see him blasting the Green Lantern Corps with their little costumes designed by, you know, a 14-year-old.
2: Uh, I don't... I, I have to wonder if there's an inker uh, credit missing because Joe Staton very rarely inked his own work, and <clears throat> and this just doesn't look like the the, the ser print does. But the foreground image really doesn't look that much like a Joe Staten piece. So it, I wonder if there's an inker credit missing. I don't see an inker signature. I just see Joe's name, but it just I don't know. It, I, unless you told me, uh, I wouldn't have known this was a Joe Staten piece. Um, Hal's face looks Staten-esque. Like might I said, the surprint because... looks like... Oh, it, but, okay. not, but not the foreground images.
1: Yeah, I'm not listening to you again. Okay. Um, Green Lantern, again, check out uh, Just One of the Guys and, um, the Lantern cast with little Chad Buckleman. Alright, up next is Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, revised. Interesting piece. Um, art is by Rick Leonardi and Carl Kessel. And, um, I guess we'll talk about the art in a minute, but Batgirl, at this point, um... They were trying to tie up some various issues with her origin. I don't know all the specifics on it, but I do know it's an interesting period in Batgirl's history because she had just retired being Batgirl, basically. And at this point in history, um, she's not Gordon's daughter. She's Gordon's adopted daughter. Uh, She's also – Gordon knows her secret identity at this point. She's been a congresswoman, and she quit being Batgirl during the crisis. um, now she's a tennis champ. Well, of course she is, and this is leading up to uh, her, you know, what's going to happen to Killing Joke in about a year at this point. But interesting things about, like, um, it talks about in here how she had hero worship for Batman, and I know for, I, I'm based on a conversation I listened to on Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast, with uh, Tom and, um and Stella. They talked about how this is a change to her origin. She did not have hero worship of Batman originally. Originally, she just wore the costume to a party and you know uh, the, and became Batgirl from there. But here, she talks about her being hero, hero worship, and I want to say they even talked about her being having to become Batgirl in the police. Did they talk about the police department at that point when she put on the costume? Yeah, the policeman's masquerade ball. So it's um. It's a little bit different at this point. I, I wish I could point out the specific details. Maybe I'll email Stella and get her to give us all the, the juicy details on it. So um, Now, the art. Rick Leonardi is an interesting choice for Batgirl. The logo is totally boss. It's like a, a, a bat who's sort of sweeping at an angle, flying at an angle, and the Batgirl words are there. And really, Rick Leonardi, as far as I know, this is the first time we ever drew Batgirl. I really like the piece. I like Rick, Rick Leonardi, even though I can see lots of flaws in the piece. Like her eyes are way too big, and the serpent. Um, her her cowl doesn't look right. Even though I think it looks really cool and stylized, it doesn't look right for Batgirl. Her legs are misproportioned. Her breasts, there's something wrong there. I, I can't even describe what's wrong there. Um, now, with all that said, Barbara Gordon still super hot. It even talks about it in here that she trained her body to near perfection. Boy, I'll say she did. Um, and in the background you get Gordon, you get her fighting killer, uh, a couple of killer moths. And some gangs, and again you see her face. So, what what's your thoughts on this one?
2: I I really like the piece. I can't argue with your criticisms of it, but I really like it. I think it's very dynamic. And Rick Leonardi mostly did stuff for Marvel, from what I yeah. remember, Cloak and Dagger and stuff. So I thought I remember even at the time thinking it was interesting that they got him over to do this. So I yeah I lo- I like it a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty cool piece. So, all right, as I said, we'll we'll touch base with Stella. Check out her Batgirl Oracle, uh, a Barbara Gordon podcast. A lot of fun. She's covered Batgirl. She called, covered Barbara literally from her beginnings too. Right now, she's in like the Suicide Squad era, covering her as Oracle. It's a fun show. And every once in a while, they have a dashingly handsome co-host who shows up. So, um, all right, up next is Batman. Again, it's got the same logo, where it's like that bat who's sort of sweeping at an angle in the Batman words. This is another revised entry, and this one is two pages. And the big thing here is, you know, Batman of Earth 1 got short shrift last time and only got one page in the original volume of Who's Who. So here he's getting his full two pages with art by Alan Davis and Paul Neary. That would be your time to cheer or clap.
2: Okay. All right. I'm cheering inwardly.
1: <laughs> and then... Um, now, maybe you can help me figure out, again, the justification for the, the, the revised version of his origin. But before we do, let's talk about the art piece. Now, why don't you lead us through it because you said this is one of your favorite pieces ever.
2: It is one of my favorite who's who pieces and one of my single favorite Batman drawings. I mean, to me, these two – this spread tells you everything you need to know about Batman. Everything. It's got the, the beautiful full-color image of him with pulling his cowl up over his face. Then you see a shot of Bruce Wayne with his sort of like shit-eating grin as the millionaire guy. <laughs> He's in the Batmobile. You see the Bat-Signal. You see Gotham City. You see a close-up of the Waynes being killed yet again. You see him uh, face-to-face with the Joker. You see his supporting cast. Then you see him and Robin in action beating up Catwoman, Riddler, and Penguin. It's just everything. To me, it's just like every, every, what's great about Batman is these two pages.
1: Yeah, I love uh, on the far right the image of, uh, I guess that's Tim Drake, smiling really big. And uh, Alfred looks just very gaunt and everything. It's it's a great shot. Really well done. And it's got my favorite, the Super Friends Batmobile. That's my favorite Batmobile. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, all right, so you tell me why you think he was included. Oh, I think this
2: is entirely because they realized that one page in the first book just was not enough. I mean, they do have some new origin details, like the whole Batman Year 2 nonsense. But uh, I really think most of it was. They just – they clearly realized between books two of the original series and then by the time they got the Flash mm-hmm. that they really should give their major characters two pages. And so I think this was just an attempt to say, you know what? Batman got one page. That's not enough. Let's give him two. Yeah,
1: okay. Now, some of the origin changes, like I, the, I picked out a couple things in here and I was trying to figure out if that was part of the changes. Like um, they talk about Leslie Thompson Ray, it was his guardian and raised him. I can't remember when that was introduced. Um, I was thinking that might have been in one of the revisions, but maybe it's been there since the '60s. I don't remember no, any I, recollection. No, I,
2: I don't think it was that early. I think it was. I think that came in the '70s. I think.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Well, then it probably would have been in the previous one as well. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned year one and year two. Um, year Two, by the way, was actually being published at this time. At this, like issue, uh, the third I- issue of Year Two was actually on the shelves. I believe at the same month this book was out. So you know whether you're a fan of that story or not, it was a big deal. And didn't Alan Davis draw some of that too? They replaced him with Todd McFarlane. Uh. <laughs> oh, that, that, I bet uh, him doing Batman helped really make his career, though. So I'm sure it did. All right, well, it's a shame this character never really went anywhere else. So, yeah. I guess we can move on. Uh, it is fun to note that, though, under um, relatives, it lists his parents as deceased. My parents are dead. And if you want more on Batman, you can uh, dig up into the archives and dust off some old Bat- uh, Bailey's Batman podcast. There he's again. Um, all right, next up is Belle Reeve. Now, is it Belle next. Reeve or Belle? Oh, really?
2: Oh, after we did the sci-fi show, I didn't realize that we could just do that. Just say next. So I'm just saying next. <laughs> you don't like the Suicide Squad? It's just <gasps> boring. It's the big gray building. Come on. Two, uh, two pages? Give me a
1: break. <laughs> now, is it – okay. Is it Bell Reeve or Belle Rev? I don't
2: know. No, I've always said it as Bell Rev. I guess okay. they'll probably mention it in the Suicide Squad movie.
1: Well, they probably did in the uh, Justice League Unlimited cartoons, stuff. Oh,
2: probably? Yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, well. I've always said Bell Reef, but whatever. Um, it's not boring. It's got a great shot of the. I mean, keep in mind, Suicide Squad is on issue four at this point, and is a, you know, I believe it was a runaway success. So DC's not going to turn a blind eye to this thing, man.
2: I'm not saying it wasn't justified. I'm just saying, it's to me, it's boring. It's just a, two Uh-oh. pages of a building, that's all. I don't
1: think it is boring, because you get the giant shot of the building, which which bleeds from the first page to the second one. You get the chopper, which, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten what they call the chopper. Sheba, there we go. Uh, and then you get, actually, floor plans of the prison itself. How cool is that? Now, what I can't remember was... I've seen these floor plans a few times, and I can't remember if, they were, um, if they're were if they original to this Who's Who entry, or if they're repurposed from maybe an issue of the comic, or even the role-playing game. So I just can't remember. But interesting notes in the, in the thing... Oh, by the way, there's also little headshots of Briscoe and uh, F. Crawley, and basically the ground support crew, which includes Karen Grace and Dr. Simon LeGrieve and some other folks. So... So the prison itself was built in the 60s to house super-powered villains, but was never actually um, open for business. So the first time it's being used is here for the Suicide Squad, and it is located in Louisiana, very close to where Swamp Thing is. And I mentioned Karen Grace, and one of the interesting things about her is she was in the original suicide squad comics the old ones like we're talking brave and the bold number 25 26 27 right before the justice league premiered that's how far the suicide squad goes back and karen grace was one of those members so here she's on the team with rick flag as well and uh simon the is worth mentioning because he then becomes a supporting character in firestorm once john ostringer's uh, really getting into his run there and if you want more uh, by the way it's drawn by luke mcdonald i should have mentioned that it's, uh, the building is gorgeous it really does it looks great and if you want more about uh, the Suicide Squad, check out the Task Force X podcast by uh, our buddy Aaron Head. So, all right. Next up, Bizarro, the John Byrne version of Zobaro. Z- That's where you get pizza. Bizarro from uh, the Man of Steel miniseries. And this is a revised entry. And, um, now, it, again, it's, it, he only appeared the one time. In uh, the Man of Steel, it like, seems like for a long time there, every time Bizarro appeared, it was almost like a different version of him, like very, very different. Because usually what happens is he gets destroyed, and then the new one shows up. So they would always kind of ultimately tweaking their way towards getting back to sort of the classic Bizarro. For me, my money, this version of Bizarro is the Bizarro I want to see. I love this version. He looks like Superman. His, uh, his colors are much more muted. It's a darker blue. Most of the reds appear as black. His skin is chalky white and his hair is all muscle, uh, muscled. Must? musty, Whatever. Black. And he looks very um, haunted is maybe a good way to put it. And awkward. And in the, in the surprint you get you know Lex with hair because that's what he actually had hair in the Man of Steel series still. You get Bizarro dressed up as Clark Kent. You get him grabbing Lucy Lane. And uh, you get him fighting Superman, and you see Lucy at the bottom, um, getting her eye. Oh, maybe he's grabbing Lois actually up there. Anyway, you see Lucy Lane's eyesight getting corrected at the end there when he's des- just smashed into a bunch of little air molecules, really basically. Um, basically, Lex Luthor created to try to create a duplicate of Superman, sort of a sort of like a biomechanical android. Anyway, it failed and then crystallized, which explains why the skin turned white. And again, when he did get smattered in a bunch of little pieces, the dust from his skin actually cured Lucy Lane's blindness. So I like this version of Bizarro. What do you think?
2: Oh, I do, too. I thought this was great. I love the visual burns. You know, he looks like a sort of just burnt out. It's like a a burnt version of Superman.
1: Oh, that's a good way to put it. They burnt the
2: toast. Uh, I think he looks great. I love the story that they did in Man of Steel. Uh, Can someone explain to me why there has never been Bizarro in a Superman movie? (laughs) <laughs> this, this this to me seems so easy to write. You have Lex Luthor create a Bizarro and then it all goes wrong, you know, and then you the movie friggin' writes itself. But then if you put Bizarro in your movie, Superman can have all those action scenes with somebody him pounding the crap out of somebody without it having to resort
1: to it being Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor can be the guy behind the scenes. Yeah. He I could I, do that. I now someone some, I,
2: yeah, someone yeah.
1: could argue Superman 3 sort of had hints of that. It was a darker-colored Superman. I, for, like, a one moment, though. I'm just
2: talking about, like... I don't know. Like, th- there's rumors that Doomsday is going to be in. Batman v. Superman. And, oh. it, and it's like... Do Bizarro! Like, it's just so simple. <laughs> well, like the, just, the, somebody creates him in a lab. Done. I, I don't know why. Every time we writers write Superman movies, they, Bizarro just never gets thought
1: of. It's weird to me. Well, I'll tell you why I wouldn't want him. Because... More than likely, they would go with a classic version of Bizarro, and I'm not a huge fan of the classic Bizarro.
2: Why would you? Why would you assume that?
1: Because they try and go for you know sort of classic-y versions of the of the villains. They they try and boil down the essence of what makes that villain popular, and then put it on the screen. And um, Bizarro is most famous for saying crap backwards and being uh, I, stupid and funny. I,
2: I, I'm going to argue with your logic there, but that's fine. all right. Whatever.
1: I mean, we could argue. Characters to film all night long, obviously. So, and most of it, none of it would go well, just because. Anyway, um, I would not want to see Goofy Bizarro Number One. No. no, 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 On the screen, so I'm afraid that's what we would get. So, anyway, um, you want to listen to Crisis to Crisis for more on that? Bailey, <laughs> crap. All right, <clears throat> next, Black Adam. Woo! This is not a revised entry, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first time Black Adam got into Husu because when they did. The first Who's Who, supposedly they didn't have all the rights necessarily worked out for Captain Marvel. There were some questions about whether they could do Black Adam or not, so they had to skip him, and he didn't show up until I think it was the Monster Society of Evil. Is that right? Yeah. I might have some of my facts wrong there, but, you know, who cares? don't fact check me on this one folks uh he's here so it is drawn by tom mandrake and uh this is you know mighty adam who in according to this version of his history which came from the shazam the new beginning because it actually lists interesting it lists first appearance marvel family number one which is you know the old old uh faucet book i guess and then it lists current version shazam the new beginning i think is that the first time we've seen that no it's on a bizarro too bizarro also first appearance and current version okay so that is a big thing you see in Who's Who updates is uh, the original first appearance and then the current version. I wanted to catch that earlier, but I guess I didn't. Okay, so this Shazam! New Beginning, which is a miniseries that had just completed at this point. Anyway, the gist of it was, you know, um, the, the wizard Shazam! created a hero back in ancient Egypt named... He uh, who, who went by Teth Adam, and then... Uh, or maybe I'm getting my names a little mixed up because he changed his name a couple times. Either way, he gave him the power. He left him there to protect Egypt after a while... Black Adam decided he wanted to become the ruler, and so he deposed the pharaoh, made himself the ruler of Egypt. That's when he took on the name, which translated to Black Adam. Because before that, he had been Mighty Adam. Then Shazam comes back; he gets trapped in quote unquote hyperspace, and then Shazam, the wizard, realizes that Black Adam's coming back, and so he recruits Billy Baston to become Captain Marvel. And that's how all this fits in. Now, why Tim Tim Tim, Tim Tom? Hard, hard for me to say. Why Tom Mandrake drew this? I have no idea.
2: Well, he, what do you mean? He was—he drew the miniseries. Did he really? Yeah. Cause see, when I googled that, it didn't come
1: up. No, yeah, no. He drew the Shazam: The New Beginning <clears throat> miniseries. Well, then there you go. Would yeah. make sense why he draws Captain Marvel later in this comic. Yeah. All right, and if you want more about uh, Black Adam, check out the completely non-existent Captain Marvel podcast. How does that even happen? That's
2: kind of. A mo- I'm sure there'll be one when the movie comes out. I can't wait for The Rock to play this guy. That ought to be
1: a friggin' blast. <laughs> and maybe there is a Shazam podcast out there and we just don't know about it. Somebody let us know if there is. If not, get somebody get on that. I mean, really. I mean, I'm not going to listen, make no mistake, but it should exist. So, all right. Next up is Blackguard, who is a Booster Gold villain, first appeared Mr. Gold number 1. And this is done by Dan Jurgens and Ann or Arnstar. And uh um, it, it's a, a lot of armor, it's got a ponytail. <laughs> I mean, I'm this is it is very what I described in previous episodes uh, of that last series, if you ever listen to it, uh, I would call the Dan Juergens house style from the mid to late 80s. And that's not a knock. That is not a negative comment. It's just when you look at it, you go, oh, yeah, that's like a Dan Juergens guy in armor. Okay, got it. And um, it's not bad. So, um, by the way, I didn't know who Arn Star was, so I had to look it up, and it turns out they were the inker on the Booster Gold series. So that sort of made sense. But he's sort of like the, um, the B- Bad Samaritan, A very generic bad guy. Very little text. Extremely generic. Sort of like, remember when Dan Jurgens was doing the Firestorm book, and he introduced three bad guys, and they were all very generic? And sort of the reason behind it, having a generic character, is they're not important to the plot. They're there just to move the story forward. And that's sort of what Blackguard was there for. He was hired by the 1000, and um, he was there to get Mr. Gold, if I remember right. Yeah. And so... You know, it's a, it's a neat picture in the front. In the background, you see the head of the 1000. You see him holding up Booster Gold, and you see a close-up of his goofy you know, mug, his face, which is hysterical. So, um, anything on this one?
2: You know what this looks like to me? What? This looks like a character Kenner created for the Superpowers Wave 4. And it then it's been turned into a combo
1: character. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It, it looks to me sort of like one of those auto-generating like Hero Machine, I don't know if you've ever played around with Hero Machine, where you can auto generate or you can create costumes, uh, superhero yeah, costumes. Yeah, so. it, it, it looks like someone hit the random button a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Which is fine. Nothing again, nothing wrong with it. It's just it's not a standout, but good stuff. Um, if you want more on Booster Gold, you should check out the Boosterific website. It's a great site run by this guy named Walter. I love it. Lots of great Booster Gold funness on there. Okay, up next in the tradition of generic villains, um, Black Mace, who is a Legion of Superheroes villain, who is a guy dressed in all black. Who carries around a mace? That's his whole shtick. Um, Again, the the origin is written, again, very specific to be generic. Like, it's on purpose. We know he is a muscle for hire, and he's had a a handful of adventures with the Legion, but they don't go into his history, they don't get into his motivation, they don't get into anything other than he's sort of a generic character, and I think that's on purpose. Again, helps to move the story forward. He's got a cool shtick because he carries around this powerful mace, but that's really, that's that, that's the big thing about him. He's a bald guy. I mentioned, he, again, he's in all in black. And uh, one of his traits is he has a limp. Art by, by the way, you know, Greg LaRock and Romeo Tengal. In the foreground, you've got him running at you with his mace. And it looks like he's got some chains dangling off his leg, I think. In the background, you see uh, Karate Kid giving him a kick to the face. Then you see what appears to be probably White Witch in her old costume, maybe? Uh creating something or he's smashing something of hers or maybe that's light last i don't know and then you see him stealing something what you got
2: Uh, this is another example of doing uh, a lot with a little uh this is a very boring character but the pose is great yeah because he's running towards the camera and it's uh that's hard to do foreshortening is really hard i could never do it uh greg laroque deserves all the credit in the world for design he could have just been standing there Or just swinging his mace, but instead he's running towards the camera, and it really gives it a great sense of movement. So this is a – the surprint is okay, but the the pose is fantastic. In fact, had I designed this, I would have blown this figure up even bigger and maybe even popped him out of the border just slightly just to give that sense of, like, great movement. So it's really nice. nice, I'm really impressed by it.
1: I like his logo too.
2: Yeah, very simple, but that's, that's not always bad.
1: Up next, Bloodsport, another John Byrne Superman character. This is from Superman number four, so this is only a few months old at this point. The, uh, the gist of this character is that he was drafted for Vietnam and didn't go. He ran to Canada. His brother then went to, went to Vietnam in his place, pretended to be him, went to Vietnam, and lost his limbs. When this guy found out, he cracked. He lost his mind and then ended up getting uh, recruited by Luther. And he becomes sort of a mercenary villain who comes after trying to kill Superman. He's got all these bizarre weapons. It's a a neat power. He's got a teleporting power where he actually teleports the weapon he wants from some other location into his hand. He also has – one of them has kryptonite needles, which became a big point in the story there when he fought Superman later on. And um, I I liked this character quite a bit in the old Burn Superman stories. I thought the teleporting weapons into his hand was really cool. And by the way, there were subsequent blood supports with the same power down the line through the years – And he's standing there, he's got camouflage on and boots, and he's got, you know, a black tank top and a bandolier, and he's got this cool red sort of, um, I don't know what kind of mask you call that, but it goes over the top of his head and his nose and ties off in the back. Uh, It looks almost Rambo-ish, Rambo-ish, you know, and then he's got uh, huge guns. And in the serpent, you see him shooting Superman, you see a close-up of his face, and you see his brother, who has lost his arms and legs, and he's sort of... Cowering back from that because he feels so guilty for what happened to his brother. And oh, I didn't even notice this. You see him on a motorcycle in the little tiny picture in the bottom. I love this. I think it's a great picture.
2: Yeah, it's a nice drawing. I mean, I never thought the character was all that much. It was just the, uh, John Byrd just kind of doing a riff on, you know, the 80s John Rambo type. But, you know, it was fine. I liked, I love John Byrd and Superman, the, the, yeah.
1: those early issues. So this was, this was a, a fun bit. Well, the thing I liked about it was he could tell the teleporting of the weapons. I thought that was cool. I really dug that. So. And uh, if you want more, I hear there's a podcast about Superman during this era. Anyway, um, up next, Blue Beetle, the first Blue Beetle, the Golden Age version, and this has also been revised, art by Gil Kane. And um, interesting here, I mean, the, the, the gist of him, we've talked about him previously, but the gist is, you know, he was an archaeologist, sort of uh, adventurer guy, and he goes off to Egypt and he finds uh, this scarab gem, and when he says a special code phrase, Kajada, he actually transforms into the Blue Beetle, who's a guy who wears blue chainmail with red gloves and a red fin across his head. And he's got pretty much whatever power they need for that story. Um, he can fly. He's got lightning, telescopic vision. He's super strong. And he goes way, way back to Fox Publishing. And they actually mention it here. They say his first appearance was in Fox Publishing. Is that the, I think
2: that's the first time
1: they've, they did that, but they actually mentioned that it's from another publisher. It could be, and maybe because there was multiple books called Mystery Men, I'm not sure. Because that's what it, Mystery Men number one. Maybe that's was the, what they were worried about the confusion. I'm not really sure. So, um, but yeah, I don't believe they mentioned the publisher ever before at this point. So he's a big hero. Um, you know, he, he he was Blue Beetle for a number of years. He even had his own what, like um, radio serial,
2: wasn't it? I think. And no, I don't he, think he, was, he had no. I don't think he had radio
1: serial. He had something like uh, some additional media. Blue Beetle, really,
2: man. yeah. We've got to consult Tim Wallace on this. We'll
1: have to yeah. consult Tim Wallace, who runs the Cord Industries blog. By the way, you should check that out. Also, you can hear him on the most recent episode of the Secret Origins podcast. More on Secret Origins podcast as we go on in this episode. So, anyway, um, he, the deal with him is he, uh, you know, he was the hero for a while. And then once Charlton got the license of Blue Beetle, they published a few more with him. But then introduced the second Blue Beetle, who we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and so this Blue Beetle retired. Well, the new Blue Beetle, Ted Cord. Before he was Blue Beetle, I guess I should say, Ted Kord came to this gentleman, whose name is uh, Dan Garrett, said, I need your help. I need you to come with me to Pago Island. I think my uncle's done something very bad. They go there, and during the course of the adventure, uh, Dan Garrett actually died. He gets buried in an avalanche and dies. And it's very sad, and then at that point, Ted Kord picks up the mantle and goes on to be Blue Beetle after him. However, this is why this, this entry is here and revised, because... Dan didn't die in the avalanche. Turns out that when Ted left Pago Island and left Dan there, Dan wasn't dead. He was trapped underneath all this stuff uh, under all the rocks the The scarab, the powerful scarab that gives him his powers, put him in a sort of a hibernation and then uh, he awoke many, many months later and was sort of possessed by the scarab and came and battled ted cord and then uh, then, after uh, all this mental struggle and everything, he did actually die. so he died there with his friend Ted didn't die on the island um personally i don't like the idea of them bringing him back from the dead it 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 it, it didn't work for me much i preferred the idea that he died in the avalanche on pago island i didn't like the story where they brought him back and he fought ted cord i didn't like having to see the two blue beetles fight didn't sit well with me even though i like lynn ween and i like paris collins it didn't work for me so it's sort of like um if they were to i don't know dig up the golden age superman after crisis and kill him in some unnecessary story glad that didn't happen yeah that's crazy Um, so you any know, thoughts on uh
2: this? It's interesting that his listing is mentioned as revised when he did not get a listing in the original Huzu Who series. Really? No, I just looked it up. He's not in it.
1: Wow. So the, you're, this isn't revised there. Yeah. I mean error. they mention okay. him.
2: They mention him in, in the Ted Cord listing, but, but mm-hmm. he does not get his own listing. So
1: How interesting. Well, you know, we didn't talk about the art by the way. So it's um okay. it, there's a lot of text, so it's not a very big picture. And you've got Blue Beetle in the foreground in color, and then in the background you've got a huge, huge shot of Dan Garrett with his glasses on. And then you've got a shot of them fighting. Um, now, I, I can be I can be hot and cold on Gil Kane. I like this piece. Yeah, me too. I think it's very nice. Yep. And you know, this is interesting. This character you think you would think that when DC did all this with him, you think you would have saw him more. You know, in post crisis, like all these other legacy characters came back, or we saw, like, tellings of their stories from the old days. Like, we'd see JSA stories that took place in the 40s and stuff like that in post-crisis.
2: Oh, I think they were trying
1: to I... sell the other version. Yeah, but there were times when Blue Beetle didn't have a series. Well, yeah. You know? So, you know, like, like Jeff Johns didn't mind this Blue Beetle for his uh, JSA run. Kind of surprising. Yeah, that's true. Know? Yeah. All right. Up next, Ted Kord Blue Beetle. Another, well, I guess I shouldn't say another revised entry. It's a revised entry. Uh, this one features, again, Ted Kord, who was created by... Um, By uh, Steve Ditko. Totally blanked. They Interesting, they kept his Charlton first appearance here. It says Captain Atom number 83. They do not say current version. So they're just saying this is still the Charlton version in the DC universe now, which is great. Uh, I talked a little bit about it, and I'm breezing through this because I'm sure you guys know Ted Cord's origin. Again, he goes to Pago Island. Dan dies. Dan says, please, carry on the tradition of being Blue Beetle. The avalanche happens. Ted does not get the magical scarab. And therefore, Ted has to go on to become Blue Beetle and build his own version of Blue Beetle. Which he does it through technology. He builds the bug. He builds the the gun that shoots uh, blasts of air and, and light and stuff like this. This is such a fun time to be a Blue Beetle fan. This series by Paris Collins and um, Len Wein. Lots of fun. A couple things to mention here. You know, Ted had a company called Cord, uh, which or OmniVersal, which he uh, which he was you know president of, and they actually rivaled Star Labs at one point. They were huge. Very interesting. Also interesting that you know him and Dan Garrett were friends. And that's not something you see. You typically with legacy characters is them being friends prior to the heroes happening. You know, so um, I, I love this character. They mentioned how he retired from being a superhero for a while and then came back. That's sort of like a nod to the end of the Charlton era. And uh, by the way, I forgot to mention something. In the original Blue Beetle entry, they talk about the alien. They talk about the scarab. They actually say the scarab was of alien origin. Because for years we just thought it was an Egyptian magical artifact. They actually say in here it's of alien origin, which. Actually works well with Jaime Reyes and um, the version of Blue Beetle that came later. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. <laughs> so uh, Blue Beetle, drawn by Paris Collins and uh, Bruce Patterson. What do you think?
2: It's nice. It's a nice piece. I, uh, Blue Beetle is one of those characters that I totally get why people love them. Mm-hmm. I just, I just never got that into it. You know really? what I mean? Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I don't begrudge anybody for saying why they like him. And DC, of all the Charlton characters that they bought, I would say DC did the most with Blue Beetle, in terms of making him a, a, a butt of a name character. Yeah, you
1: know? I'd so. agree with that. Well, they may, maybe they figured it was Steve Ditko esque, you know, and so Spider Man, or they thought it was just it would work. I like this piece.
2: Well, um, no, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I think they tried with all of them. I don't. Mean, I don't mean that they tried the most with Blue Beetle. I just think oh. they were the most
1: successful. Oh, yeah, that's fair yeah he he really got into people's public con- conscious. You and know, we all love Blue Beetle so if you want a lot more there's a lot more to say about this character I'm going to just move on because we're we're running on time here but check out again the Secret Origins podcast episode 2 Tim Wallace guest stars on it with some other guy who hosts it I don't even remember that guy's name and uh, it's really great check it out Re- they just huge info dump on Blue Beetle and the history it's a wonderful discussion so alright up next Booster Gold the star of the issue so you've got Booster in the foreground, sort of a, it's sort of an action he posed, but not terribly exciting. Um, and in the, and it's by, by the way, Dan Juergens and Mike DiCarlo. And in the Serpent, you've got uh, you know him blasting a guy in armor, you've got a close-up of his face without his costume on, you see him doing a product endorsement, you see him flying, and I failed to mention, sorry, in the foreground, in color, is Skeets. So, so if you don't know Booster Gold, of course you do. He's from the future, he was a football player, a college football player with a, with a Excellent career. However, he threw it all away because he started betting on his own games, um, much like Jameis Winston. And uh, at that point, he gets busted. He's out of there. He, he's no longer a football player. He's working in a museum, This, I think the Space Museum. And he steals a bunch of artifacts, travels back in time to the 20th century to become a superhero. And he succeeds. Uh, and he becomes very popular. He does all these product endorsements, all these things. And, uh, he, and most other superheroes don't like him because he's in it for the money and he's in it for the fame. What do you think?
2: I, I I wish they had not gotten Mike DiCarlo. Mike DiCarlo kind of like stiffens everybody's up, everybody's artwork up. And I really like Juergens, so like I is wish it? I had seen somebody either Dan ink it himself or somebody else ink it. So just there's – just, there's just sort of a – again, I, I use the same word. There's kind of just like a stiffness to it that I don't necessarily associate with Dan Juergens and stuff. So I, I think this is pretty good,
1: but it's it's like a little bit of a miss for me. And, and that could be, because I mentioned, you know, he's like a, almost in an action pose, but doesn't look all that exciting. Maybe it's the inking that did it. I don't yeah, know.
2: Yeah, I don't
1: know. A couple things to mention. I love uh, his logo, because the S is dollars, which is yeah. great. Um, I, as I read his origin here, I didn't realize he met Rip Hunter so early in his adventures. I knew he stole Rip Hunter's time bubble, and I knew Rip Hunter would become very influential in the, you know, the the 2000s Blue uh, Booster Gold series, but I didn't realize, he I'd forgotten, I guess, that he had met Rip Hunter in the early issues of uh, Booster Gold. So, um, also one other thing to mention, this is when he had sort of the really short, not quite buzz cut, but fairly short hair, versus what I call his floppy hair, which you see on the cover. I like the floppy hair better, personally. I like him with the longer hair, shaggy-ish, if you will. And Booster Gold, by the way, at this point was on issue 19, so he's sailing towards the end of his series. And I forgot to mention, Blue Beetle was on issue 15 at this point, so he still had another nine issues to go before he got canceled. And both of them, by the way, mentions group affiliation of the Justice League. And Justice League was on only issue four at this point, which I think is probably when Booster actually joins the team. He it joins, is. It is. Yeah, it was four or five. So Four. I mean, that, that had just happened, so good timing on that. Up next is Brimstone by Joe Brzozowski and Dennis Janky. And a great shot. Brimstone is large as life. And he should be because he's like, you know, 10 stories tall or whatever. And he's on fire and he's sort of screaming to the heavens. And great shots in the background where he's smashing up Star Labs. He's fighting Firestorm and Power, uh, Cosmic Boy. And then in the bottom, the, the Suicide Squad's destroying him. Great. The logo looks like it's burnt. Really wonderful one. Joe Brzozowski did a great job on this one. Love it. Now, Ostringer is uh, credited as a contributing writer to this issue, so I think it's pretty obvious Ostringer wrote this entry. Talks a lot about Darkseid and the Legends miniseries and how he was created from a techno seed, and he believed he was a fallen god, and he has all this energy in a in a magnetic field is what's holding it all together, and that's how they destroyed him. Because Deadshot had a special gun that would disrupt the magnetic field and destroy the Techno Seed and take out Brimstone. And that's how they managed to do it. At the very end of the entry, though, there's a neat line. It's as though Darkseid claims he can recreate Brimstone at his whim. He has yet to see fit to do so. And uh, he does. Uh, Brimstone does get recreated later. He gets recreated in Firestorm, and I want to say he gets recreated in another book as well. Before then, but either way, which thing? Oh, I like this character. I like the design, and I think
2: the, it's something I realized in Who's Who that I'd never thought of before. Maybe because in his previous iteration, uh, uh, previous appearances, he was always because he's a giant. Mm-hmm. He's he's fifty foot, six feet, inches. Um, that you never see him all in one shot. You always see kind of up shots or parts mm. of him. That when you see him here, he's dressed like a wrestler. <laughs> and he's Never really dawned to me before, but he is yeah, really—he's right. dressed like a wrestler. So uh, that kind of gives it a little more of a silly angle than I really appreciated. But it's a neat design. The face is great. The face just—you know—I would love to skull. see it like animated. It's just like a fiery skull. It's a really—it's a—it's a fairly silly character, but so well designed that it doesn't matter.
1: Well, watch just as the first episode of Just Like Unlimited. I'm pretty sure it's, it's either Brimstone or a version just like Brimstone that's uh, animated in that. So,
2: Yeah, Occupation is Avenging Angel.
1: Well, you know it. I love that aspect of him, that, 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 that he believes he's you know from a fallen god. It's great. And uh, if you want more on him, check out the Task Force X podcast. They covered legends. Also, Hey Kids Comics covered legends. If you want more on, you know, he's mentioned over on the Firestorm Fan Blog, and Diablo Frank once tried to steal him for his vile menagerie uh, from Martian Manhunter. I mean, he's lots of stuff on Brimstone on the web. Definitely check it out. Love it, love it, love it. Um, also, he's in uh, Firestorm number one hundred, the final issue of Firestorm. Look at that. Up next, Captain Adam, revised entry, and you do get a modern version and uh, original version first appearances. And um, you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail of it, but turns out, you know, he's a guy. He's a he's a military guy who got in trouble with the law and uh, was. Basically, framed for a crime, he was going to be executed and opted instead to be part of the Captain Adam project, where then they zapped him with a bunch, you know, put this alien armor on him and zapped him full of energy and it ended up transporting him to the future by 20 years. And well, during these 20 years that had passed, uh, the, the, the general that he doesn't like ended up marrying his wife, adopting his kids, his wife died, uh, all this stuff happens. But in the end, uh, the government basically says Captain Adam, you have to work for us or we're going to reinstate the charges and execute you. So he has no choice but to continue to work for the government, and at this point is very much a government stooge. Uh, Captain Adam is only on issue number six at this point, point. and check this out: under group affiliation, it actually says Justice League International,
2: which is a couple months ahead of time.
1: Right, and everybody else says Justice League at this point in this in this same issue says Justice League. His says Justice League International, which is fascinating because I don't think he actually joined till issue seven anyway. Right. So they're they're planning all that out very nicely. Now, um, it's funny, you know, he's a he's a Military guy who volunteered for a government experiment, uh, which gave him powers, and now he's a man out of time, and, is, uh, and he's called a captain. Sound familiar? <laughs> now, here's something else to think about, all right? So follow the logic here. Captain Adam was created in the 60s, right? Um, like, in, in Actually, in real world, comic book. And then in 1986, um, Alan Moore writes Watchmen and adapts m- the character of Captain Adam into the character of Dr. Manhattan, right? In Watchmen, when Dr. Manhattan gets created, he gets zapped, he dissipates, and then months later, he reforms into a human body, right? Well, this version of Captain Atom, which was written a year later, is kind of similar. He gets zapped, he disappears, and has to reform his body later. So, is this like a a snake eating its own tail, where Captain Atom inspired Dr. Manhattan, and then Dr. Manhattan inspired Captain Atom?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I never thought of that before, but you're right.
1: I didn't think about it either until I was reading this. So and realized this was 1987 after Watchmen. Because I don't think the previous Captain Adam had a time jump like that. Or I think they call it a... I don't think they quite call it Quantum Leap, do they? Do they actually call it Quantum Leap? I don't think so. Quantum Jump, I think is what they call it. Anyway. Um, you know, lots of things to say about this version of Captain Adam. I love him from the 80s. The Captain Adam series itself wasn't always my favorite. But I love the character. I love his appearances. I love a government representative superhero out there who's kind of screwing over the hero sometimes by reporting on him. So, I dug the character and I dug his his place in the DC universe at this point. Oh, art by uh, Pat Roderick, by the way, Firestorm extraordinary artist, should have mentioned that. He's uh, he's sort of standing very stock still with his <laughs> he arms. He looks like a greeter at a casino. <laughs> yeah, well, his arms up, like, yeah, like he's saying, hello, welcome to the, the Quantum Nugget. Um, in the background, you see him, uh, you see General Eiling, and him, and well, I think it's him with sunglasses on. You see him becoming energy, you know, fighting Plastique, Firestorm villain, General Eiling, Dr. Megala, and then you see him flying across the sky. And uh, I, by the way, there's this whole thing in here I should have okay. mentioned too, where I love that they gave him a fake origin. They basically said... You know, they, they didn't tell the public that he had come from the past, from the 60s to the 80s. They said, oh, no, he's been a hero for years. He's been doing all these black ops missions. You haven't heard of him. But he's a real American hero, which is great. It's, what a great idea. I love that. So it makes for a good, good idea, good sort of, you know, intrigue, subterfuge type stuff. If you want more on Captain Adam, check out the Splitting Adam blog. Uh, Splitting Adam blog by our buddy Jay Jones. All right. Up next... Captain Marvel, also drawn by Tom Mandrick, and duh, he drew the Shazam miniseries, of course. (laughs) Who doesn't know that? Right, everybody. uh, Another revised entry, and um, not a lot to say that we haven't said previously about Shazam or Captain Marvel. Um, Minor differences Savannah is his uncle in this. His parents died in a car accident, and they're in San Francisco rather than Fawcett City. Uh, Four image is, you know, Shazam or Captain Marvel with his arm raised. In the background is a, in the serpent, is a miniature version of. Billy Batson in the same exact pose, as you know, sort of, sort of like in the Serpent, it gets struck by lighting, and then he becomes the color version of Shazam. It's a, nice, it's a nice layout. And then you see Black Adam and Savannah and the Wizard in the background. Not the most exciting picture, though.
2: Now, I, I, I know that Roy Thomas, I think, are, and DC, was trying to do something different by getting somebody dark and gritty like Tom Mandrake to do Captain Marvel. I don't think it really worked. Yeah. But that's, you know, I have points for trying.
1: Yeah, it, t- it took Jerry Ordway to make this work, you know, in the yeah. post-crisis universe, really. So, All right, uh, watch for that Captain Marvel podcast, coming from somebody. So, up next, Carapax. Next. Or, or actually, Codename Spitfire. Yeah, it's a little-known Marvel DC crossover that most people don't know about. In the new universe, this, the series Sp- Codename Spitfire, or Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, uh, actually crossed over with Blue Beetle, and that's where you get Carapax from, because he looks exactly like Spitfire. Marvel was like, just take them. It's fine. <laughs> we just go ahead. We don't have any use for the new universe anymore. DP, DP
2: Seven Merck. You can take. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave a Star Brand, but you could take the rest. Of it.
1: Right, leave a Star Brand in Justice. Thank you, thank you. Bye bye now. Uh, drawn by Paris Collins, because of course he was drawing Blue Beetle. I mentioned earlier Blue Beetles on issue fifteen at this point. Um, so, uh, lo- not a lot to say. Basically, he's a rival scientist to Dan Garrett, uh, or rival archaeologist. I'm sorry, of Dan Grant- Garrett. He goes to Pagau Island after Dan Garrett dies there, looking for stuff. Ends up getting entrapped in one of these robots. He actually dies. He gets electrocuted. His body gets transported into this, this robot. And, uh, and then he fights you know, the modern-day Blue Beetle. So um, Probably a bit of a more... He looks pretty cool, though. I mean Paris designed a pretty cool-looking robot. Again, it just looks a little too much like Spitfire. Here's the thing that I have a hard time sort of wrapping my brain around. He's referred to throughout this as the Indestructible Man. So Carapax is his real name, Conrad Carapax. And then once he gets in the robot body, he's called the Indestructible Man. And the main image is him in the robot body. So why is this alphabetically under Carapax and not under Indestructible Man?
2: That's a good question. Why is that? I don't know. Oh, I thought it was a rhetorical
1: question. No, no, I don't have it. Well, rhetorical mean we don't have an answer, so it was rhetorical. So we would have to ask our buddy Tim Wallace. Well,
2: no, rhetorical question is like you're asking it. You know the answer. You're just sort of asking
1: the question to set, set up the answer. Once again, my command of the English language is weak. Look, I'm just trying to get through this thing in a hurry so you can go have your latte, all right? You made it very clear that if you don't have your latte, by a certain time, you're going to have a hissy fit, and I don't want to go through that again, all right? This is a new show. We don't need those same problems anymore. All right, uh, check out Court Industries' blog with, Ted, uh, with Tim Wallace. So, All right, next up, Car-charo, Ch- Car- I think... Carcharo? Carcharo, I think. Carcharo, okay. Um, drawn by everyone's best friend, Todd McFarlane. <laughs> he is a character from Infinity Inc., one of the villains from Helix, everyone's favorite supervillain team. So here's the deal. He is apparently the cousin of Wildcat 2, so Yolanda Moto is. Apparently, uh, when the mother of Yolanda and the mother of this guy, uh, were pregnant. They got experimented on and that caused, you know, them to develop powers. That's why she developed her cat powers and he developed these shark powers. He actually was born as kind of a humanoid shark. He loses his parents, ends up in the water, and just grows up underwater without parents around, any, without human raising him. So he's basically a shark swimming around underwater, raising himself. Somehow he gets hooked up with Helix and, um... When they deals with Infinity, Inc., there's a big shark attack, right? So they go to check it out. And he is somehow controlling these 40-foot-long sharks that he's calling megalodons, right? And he has his – wait for it – his enormous shark-shaped submarine. You know it. He's got two female companions he calls Remoras. That's that's pretty clever, actually. Uh, Ultimately, the helix loses – and Mister Bones is uh, the leader of Helix. Gets kidnapped, but are uh, captured, and then eventually sort of works with Infinity Inc. And um, in a final battle, uh, Car- Charo, whatever, bites off the leg of Mister Bones and dies from the cyanide touch. Wow, pretty crazy. So this guy's a wart. This yeah. is actually my
2: favorite McFarland piece because I just feel like the character. <laughs> it is because I feel like the character matches his stylistic excesses. Okay. Because the anatomy is not meant to be anywhere near human, it, yeah. it works. There's no crazy hair or the cape that makes no sense. So, and, and like he actually does the foreshortening. So this is like my—I mean, the character is ridiculous. It's a shark with armor on, but uh, but it's my it's my favorite of the McFarlane pieces.
1: what actually, it looks more like a lizard because he's got like well, lizard-like teeth. He's got a lizard yeah. tongue, but then he's got like you know underwater creature fins. Yeah. And so, so it's, it's a, his, an odd mix.
2: His yeah. weight is listed as 138 pounds. I'm not buying that.
1: Yeah, I'm not either. It's 6'4".
2: Yeah, he's a giant shark with armor on. Come on.
1: Hollow bones. I don't know. Um, yeah. Listen to the Tales of GSA, folks. Uh, next, Caress from the Legion of Superheroes. Or, well, she's from the Legion of Superheroes comic. She's not a member of the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, art by Greg LaRock and Mike DiCarlo. And, um it's a bit of a washed out piece almost like she's there with her arms outstretched and uh, she's got a boob window. So she may be from earth too. I'm not sure. Uh, blue costume with a white cape and a white hood. So the faces in the serpent are sort of over her cape. And so it almost makes the white black cape look a little washed out in her, and her, her cape's already white. It's, mm-hmm. It seems like the color's off a bit, that's all. So, um, But it's a nice picture by Greg, Greg Glorock. She looks pretty hot. Um, again, she's sexy, she's skinny, she's got a boob window. Love it. She's an adventurous and a mercenary. And uh, she did a, a mission for the Coons, Cahoons, however you say it. And uh, she asked them, you know, one of her payments, she wanted superpowers, So she got this acid touch. And she ended up joining the Reformed Fatal Five. Not a lot more information about her here. No. Okay. <laughs> That's all you got? Oh, it's yeah. the engineer. When she got the costume, she's
2: like, I want a raven look, but with Power Girl boob window. Like, I think Perfect. I, like, I can do that for you.
1: <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a final entry of the book Catalyst. Next. Oh, no, 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 sir. Catalyst is a villain from Blue Beetle who then eventually went onto the Firestorm book. So sorry. Okay. Drawn by Paris Collins and Malcolm Jones the 3rd He's got sort of red costume with some different black and white accents he's got white boots white gloves uh, with his fingertips exposed his red sort of almost bullet man mask uh, with a breathing apparatus and different tubes running off of him in the background you see his face with crazy spiked hair and really you know, like scary face and you see him uh, battling blue beetle in a couple different ways and um, interesting character The deal here is he works for Cornelius Krieg Pharmaceuticals, and he's a covert agent for them, and he is literally a living pharmacopoeia. He can create the effects of whatever known drug. So, like, you need a Valium, he can touch you and release the same chemical from a Valium. You need uh, penicillin, he can do the same thing. Cyanide, you know, whatever. Um, And so he's able to create all this. Eventually, he stops being a villain and gets involved with the Captains of Industry, which was John Oster's sort of – corporate superhero team which he didn't get a chance to develop really far but it was a neat idea having him on there and he was used to control bad guys like he uh, he actually controlled the thinker for a while by keeping him calm with certain meds and stuff neat idea you really wanted to next this guy
2: i did uh, uh, yeah my favorite thing about him is his base of operations nice the french riviera mm-hmm. it's like if you're going to be a villain why not have a base of operations at a really nice place <laughs> it is nice, yeah. nice
1: <laughs> I love that background surprint of his of It's a great
2: drawing. Face. I mean, I yeah. love the face. It's a really nice drawing just the, the character just looks like just ridiculous
1: to me but, well and and part of the point of this entry is they're actually we're only halfway through telling his story at this point. It looks like it looks like they're actually building up to a confrontation with Blue Beetle based on the way it's written, so. Alright, then you get the last page, you know, which is uh, a bunch of, which is six different covers. You get uh, Action Comics, Batman The New Adventures, Legion of Superheroes, Suicide Squad, The Green Lantern Corps, and Wonder Woman. Um, A couple of nice covers in here. I like the Suicide Suicide Squad cover, I like the Legion cover, uh, and the Action Comics cover. Those are all very nice. Then, um, you know, it tells you where you can find the characters. A few worth mentioning. It says Amethyst is going to get a new four-issue miniseries this summer. And uh, that's pretty cool. And I think she does, if I remember right. Maybe maybe she doesn't, because this is after her ongoing. Maybe she doesn't, actually. I'm not sure. Talks about Ares is the most dangerous opponent the new Wonder Woman has faced yet. I like that. Batgirl's story gets retold in Secret Origins number 20 this summer. I love Secret Origins. Such a good show. Uh, or a good comic. And they're on issue 17 at this point, so just a few months away. And then Captain Adam, it says... Captain Adam appears every month in his own title and will soon join the Justice League, which we got a sneak peek of in his, um, in his uh, group affiliations. All right. Well, um, folks, take a breath. I think what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a short break. We're going to come back in four or so minutes. In the meantime, you are going to listen to an extended promo for a new show, a new uh, podcast on the interwebs called Secret Origins, hosted by a gentleman by the name of Count Druncula. And uh, it's, it's a great promo, and it's a great show. They're on two episodes already by the time, this, uh, time of this recording. Definitely check it out. Enjoy the promo.
0: Hey, listeners, it's Ryan Daly here to give you an exciting sneak peek at the Secret Origins podcast, a review show dedicated to the post-crisis Secret Origins comics. Secret Origins told, or retold, or occasionally reimagined the origins of many of DC's legendary superheroes, including Superman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Jonah Hex, Nightwing, Plastic Man, Batgirl, Black Hawk, Black Lightning, Booster Gold, Detective Chimp, the Legion of Superheroes, and a hundred others. But I won't be alone in my coverage of these epic stories. I'm bringing the best and brightest and irredeemable as guest stars from the blogosphere and podcast community, such as Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I think this is a great idea for a podcast, and I wish I thought of it first, but it's in good hands. Chris and I are going to be reviewing the first issue of Secret Origins, which tells the story of the Golden Age Superman. And now, Chris, I don't know if this has ever come up before on your own show, but would you say you're much of a Superman fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am definitely a Superman fan. Uh, Superman, the movie, is still my favorite movie of all time. That's my Star Wars. I don't remember a time when I didn't know who Superman was. Tim Wallace from Court Industries, a blog devoted to Blue Beetle. My friends, my close friends, would probably tell you that Aquaman was my favorite hero. And they wouldn't be too far off from the truth, but there was already a pretty decent blog covering Aquaman so I went for my number two which was which was Blue Beetle and this issue actually has a lot to do with uh why he's one of my favorites. Luke Giaconetti from the Hawkman blog being Carter Hall in the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Thank you for having the the enthusiasm to talk about Halo because this (laughs) is not a character that I know much about. Uh you know it's uh I'm, I'm I'm one of the oddballs in that I'm an Outsiders fan who doesn't like the Teen Titans. (laughs) <laughs> so I, f- I figure I'm, I'm pretty much required to do my, my, uh, you know, my due diligence in defending the members of the Outsiders team, especially one of the originals. Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of geekery and the Hero Points podcast.
1: One of the subjects I keep returning to is Golden Age superheroes. I like exploring the, the history of
0: comics, and especially DC Comics, which has the biggest load of, uh, of Golden Age heroes. In Secret Origins is full of these because Roy Thomas wrote, um, you know, half the series
1: or so, and just like he wrote a lot of Golden Age heroes and brought Golden Age heroes to the um, to our attention in the '80s, which was when I started reading comics.
0: And of course, Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast.
1: The plan was all this time. Once we finished Who's Who, we were going to do the Secret Origin series. That was our next, ga- our next uh, big project. And you have swooped in and stolen it. And I'm just saying, you better not screw this up. I mean, you're on episode four, and you brought in your biggest guest star yet. But from here, if it's just downhill, I'm going to be really ticked off that you ruined our idea.
0: Mm, I wasn't really listening to any of that. Plus more incredible guests including Sean Engel, Chad Bokelman, Kyle Benning, Nathaniel Wayne, Paul Scovito, Greg Arajo, Tom Paneris, Doug Zawissa, Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Max Romero, Gene Hendrix, Stella, Ange, Diablo Frank, and possibly even more. Join us as we uncover the secret origins of all your favorite DC heroes. Except for Wonder Woman, and Aquaman and Supergirl. And the Huntress, and Red Tornado, and Mira, and Aqualad, and John Stewart, the Green Lantern, and Wildcat, and Metamorpho, and Geoforce, and Mr. Terrific, and Snapchat. The Secret Origins Podcast.
1: And we're back. All right, folks. I uh, want to talk about this. we got a message from Joe. C- we're going to do feedback, by the way. Now, um, we heard from Joe Crawford. He says, do the Convergence Who's Who entries come after Impact is finished? That's a fair question, Rob. You know, the, um, they did Who's Who in the New 52. Um, sh- are we going to cover those down the line?
2: Uh, let's f- decide that when we get there.
1: All right, folks. Wait for that answer in 2018.
2: I, right. I, I think the Who's Who in Legion might kill me.
1: So, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. You got
2: so. a, You got somebody that's going to step in?
1: <laughs> All right, folks, then I want to give a shout out to Zoom Yukinori, the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award winner for Who's Who. He has done two more amazing Who's Who entries, folks. One of them is Firestorm the Atomic Man, which is a golden age version of Firestorm he drew for The Line It Is Drawn. It is super fun. It's already out there on Firestorm Fan. It's out there in The Line It Is Drawn. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but go check it out. Uh, it is it's Firestorm in the Golden Age, and he's a hero, but eventually he becomes a villain of the Golden Age Aquaman. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hysterical, and he wrote it in such a way that it fits perfectly into Who's Who Update, because it's uh, page number 24 and a
2: half. <laughs> a talented guy, that Zoom.
1: Uh, well, the next one, the next one is possibly, I'm actually going to have this hanging on my wall soon, this next one, I kid you not. This is incredible. It means so much to me. Zoom Yukinori did a Who's Who page. About me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's called Who's That? With, a, with an F&W logo. It's called Fire Shag, the new killer fan. <laughs> it's got Firestorm in the foreground with flaming hair, but he's bald. And he's wearing glasses. Um, and then in the Surprint, you actually have a, – a, these are drawings, folks. A drawing of me. Just straight up me. Uh, And then there's sort of like an explosion in the foreground. I guess as I'm transforming, you see in the background uh, another explosion. I guess that's me actually transforming. I'm sorry. You see, I guess, my arch nemesis, Rob Kelly, (laughs) who's reaching out towards the camera, and you see lines coming from his bald head.
2: I am a serpent. My life is
1: complete. I, you're a surprint. I'm a surprint, and my wife is a surprint. I don't know if you realize that or not. That's Firehawk down there, yep. but that is actually uh, he sure. based her face on my wife's face. Yep. Uh, so that is uh, <laughs> that's Fire Gina. Well, she's li- she's listed as C Gina Hawk. Oh, Gina Hawk. Yes. So it is drawn by Zumi Kanori, and it is written by Michael Bailey, the guy who I was besmirching so much of throughout this whole thing he actually wrote the text and uh zoom made a, t- a tweak here or two. i made a tweaker here too but michael wrote you know 99 of this text it's wonderful um i'm not going to go to again for the interest of time i'm not going to go into a lot but it, believe me you're going to see this because it's going to be everywhere it's going to be on my facebook it's going to be on firestorm fan it's going to be on probably once upon a geek it's going to be on every social media you can think of this sucker better go viral um, it is an incredibly huge ego boost to me, which is what, you know, we need more of in the world. So I, uh, my... I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. No, I
2: love the fact that there is a listing for Diablo Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to God it's drawn by Alex Saviak. That's
1: <laughs> 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 oh man. I, I can't tell you. This just makes me so happy on yeah. so many levels. Uh, I, I have to mention my occupation, podcast co-host and general annoyance to Aqua Rob.
2: <laughs> Good work. If you can get it. There's so
1: much in here. Oh my gosh! All right, um, you know, maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode because I think it deserves to be talked about again. So I may even want to read it, but we get we get we got to we got to keep moving. You got to get that latte. Okay, we got some iTunes reviews. Just want to acknowledge real quick. Um, we got a nice one from adding Adam Garin. Gar- Gar- Garin, I guess. Garin. So. Adam Garin. Yeah, him too. We got one from uh, Piper Ruth. Ooh, and I'm just going to read pieces of this stuff here. It says, The Who's Who episodes are included in the feed, and they're epic. I'm late to the party, but I'm having a blast catching up. I started with the first episode, and I want to hear them all, savoring every last decibel. The host interaction with our audience is spectacular. I'd buy these guys a Blue Devil beer. Well, thank you very much, Piper Ruth. Really appreciate that. And then Dr. G. G-Man uh, of Nerdology wrote on Who's Who. He said, in addition to um, talking about our podcast, in addition, they cover topics like DC Who's Who, Power Records, and many others. This podcast is also the perfect gateway drug to the entire multiverse of comic book podcasts. As a fan of comics, new and old, this would make an excellent addition to the podcast playlist. And finally, we heard from FSU DJ. I said, if you're a fan of DC Comics, particularly ones from the mid-'80s, you need to be listening to this podcast. I started with their Who's Who episodes, which are beyond awesome. And we'll be sticking around for anything else these guys put out. Man. Thanks so much for those guys. I've said this before, I'll say it a million times. The listeners of shows in the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which includes Who's Who, you guys are the single greatest listening community on the planet. You guys are pro- actively part of this show. So much, I mean, the Zoom drawings are a perfect example. You guys are part of these shows. The show is nothing without you because you guys then come in and correct us when we make mistakes, mostly the Robson mistakes. Um, and you, you contribute, you do art, you do songs. I, I love you guys. And I'm so glad to be back here with you guys on this brand new show. <laughs>
2: We got an email from Mike of Mike's Amazing World, and he took me to task for a previous episode <laughs> where I said Mike's Amazing World is falling down on the job in regarding to Wonder Tot. And then Mike followed up with these articles on his site that he wrote about Wonder Tot. And then I went back and said, you know, well, Mike, I was just kidding around because obviously every single DC Comics and now probably Marvel podcaster owes you some money because everybody <laughs> uses Mike's Amazing World as a resource. And so uh, he – and then he followed up with, P.S., please don't take this the wrong way. It's all in good fun. But if you're going to publicly call me out like that, I feel obligated to defend myself. (laughs) Despite your occasional lack of familiarity with some of the characters, I do enjoy your Who's Who show.
1: (laughs) Well, let's face it. He knows every single DC character. I mean he could give Peter Sanderson a run for his money I think. you know He owns like every
2: DC comic from like 1950 on. I know. I'm like where does he store them? I don't even know, like, what does he live, like...
1: Well, he probably is- doesn't want people to know, because... I know. guess so.
2: His yeah. house must look like Wayne Manor or something. It's
1: crazy. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, we heard from Sean Engel. He said, I had to chime in when Canada Clark wrote into the Victory Lap episode with his vitrolic hate, I said that wrong, vitrolic hate of Guy Gardner. Now, I wanted to be a reactionary fanboy. I could call him out for his comments and try to make a case of how wrong he is, but honestly, I've come to the conclusion that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, even if it differs vastly from your own. That person's opinion is no less valid. Arguing about what a character you like or dislike just lowers the level of the discourse, and in the end fails to change opinions, and more often than not solidifies one opinion against the other, causing more animosity among people who should be all embracing their love of comics medium. Whoa! That is deep. That is insightful. It is peacemaking, and it does not belong anywhere near comic book (laughs) fandom. Wow. Thank you, Sean. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And the way I see it, you know, if it's not in line with yours, they're wrong. So anyway, thank you, Sean. I didn't learn a thing. All right. Uh, Up next is Jose Rivera. He said, I'm getting pumped for the updates, meaning like update 87 and things like that, uh, because you'll be coming up to an issue I had as a kid. In fact, that was my first issue of Who's Who. Like you, I'm excited for the for the updates, Jose. I can't wait.
2: Uh, he asks, "Do we remember?" He says, "My question to you guys is this: Do you remember the first issue of Who's Who you ever got, and do you remember how you acquired it? What made you fall in love with the series?" I do remember. Uh, there used to be a chain of stores called Heroes World, which were in malls, comic shops in malls. They had these really cool doors that were like uh, uh, like a pow symbol with all cutouts. Uh, it was crazy to walk in there; you poke your eye out walking in the door. But they <laughs> they carried comics, and that I used to. Buy my comics at a, a standalone shop, and then sometimes Heroes World when I was at the mall, and I just happened to be in Heroes World when Huzu Who number one came out. I was eagerly awaiting the series. It had Aquaman on the cover by George Perez—can't beat it. And I loved Who's Who from the beginning. I mean, I'm a, I, I love digging into all these old characters. That this is like the perfect series for me, obviously, because we're spending five years of our life talking about it. So <laughs> I was a fan from the first issue on, and it never waned.
1: I've told this story before on the show, but, you know, it's been a while, uh, and you guys probably don't pay attention to anything I say. Um, My mom and I had to stay in a hotel for about a month while we were transitioning between houses. We were moved out of one and getting ready to move into another, and we were stuck in this little tiny hotel room for, like, a month, and she wanted to keep me busy. And so she bought me comic books with lots of words. (laughs) She said, you've got to find things that take a while for you to read. So I picked up Who's Who and Marvel Saga. And, you know, if that's not going to keep, like, a 12-year-old busy for hours, I don't know what will. So I picked up, uh, it was Who's Who number nine, which is the Green Lantern issue. And I read that sucker cover to cover over and over. And it's uh, probably still my favorite issue because of that. And that's why I have so much love for Charlie Vickers, even though I've never read a comic with him. (laughs) All right. Uh, Up next is our buddy Tom Panarese. Who says? Um, by the way, you can hear him on In Country, and uh, I should be naming everyone's podcast. I'm a terrible person. Sean Engel, uh, by the way, going back. Sean Engel, uh, host of Just One of the Guys. He's on Listen to the Prophets, Deep Space Podcast, uh, Deep Space Nine, Who's Who, True Freaks. He's got a bunch of stuff. Go find Sean Engel. Listen, he does a ton of stuff. Tom Paneris does In Country and Pop Culture Affidavit. He says, I can't wait for you to get to the Binder Edition. I collected this as it came out, and over the last few years, I've been taking various entries to comic conventions and having them artists and writers sign them. Oh, that's, man. That's great stuff. That's great. Then he takes me, for task, uh, takes me to task because I, I, I like to take pot shots at my friends. So I took a pot shot at him about Donna Troy. And he comes back and basically says he sees Donna Troy as the as Jennifer Connolly in uh, the movie Career Opportunities, that era. So, so yeah, very sexy. And then Tom Paneris, I think he drinks at late at night or something because he sent a picture of a composite Superman shirt just to uh, get under Rob I's skin.
2: It's a great shirt, though. I mean, the artwork's great.
1: It I mean, is the character cool. is ridiculous, but it's yeah. <laughs> That's Tom, that's got to be Tom Grummet, I think. Looking uh, up. I
2: don't. Know. I think there's. Hmm. I think it's somebody channeling JLGL. Not 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 him exactly, but huh. uh, anyway, we got a message from Earth Two Chris. He says, "I really need to track down that Ambush book comic." I'll freely admit, I didn't get Ambush Bug as a kid. I hated when he showed up in Action Comics. I think I was too young to want snarky humor in my serious superhero comics. I love that idea because, like, as we know him, Chris seems like a very agreeable guy. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe Cindy can tell us the truth or something. But he just <laughs> seems like such a nice guy. And I'm just picturing him as, like, this very serious comic book fan as a kid. You know, he's like, I don't want laughs. It's all serious. No, I have much fun. So, And yet he
1: uh, he celebrates the, the, the Wonder Woman pilot that never aired, or the, the terrible Wonder Woman pilot. He, he's... Is be-
2: he is definitely becoming a connoisseur of horrible live-action adaptations. <laughs> no doubt about it.
1: I mean, maybe that wasn't snarky, but let me tell you, it's snarky when you watch it now. Uh, anyway, Chris, by the way, Chris and Cindy host the Supermates podcast. So. Uh, and he said, speaking of a Loose Leaf Edition, I, uh, you know, this is, I'm excited about this. And you guys are going to have to all write back in when we do Loose Leaf and st- share these stories again. But I want to know how people organize their Loose Leaf Editions because uh, everyone has their own style. So he says, I have no idea what characters came in what issue because I organized my pages more or less by comic title or character with Superman and his friends, foes, locales, etc. for team characters who didn't have solo titles. Then after the team entry, uh, they went after the team entry and then leftover characters I put under hero, villain, supernatural. <laughs> Don't worry. When we get to this entry, when we get to the binder, who's who? I've already thought about it. We're going to post the cover like maybe a few days before the episode goes live so you can go find those entries. I think is how we're going to do that. So... We heard from uh, Joe X. He, uh, we talked about how uh, OGRE and all those sort of acronym supervillain, you know, super spy bad guy teams didn't get mentioned. He says, if you're going to list OGRE, you need to add Caw, C-A-W, and the other fake Spectre and Thrush agencies as well. You could probably build a Fire and Water podcast around them, including the 2000 Committee and the 1000. That's a good point. Uh, heard from our buddy Andrew, who runs the Supergirl blog, and he's also a uh, Legion of Blogger. He gave his love out for the Amazing Heroes fanzine as well. I guess it's not a fan scene because it was an official publication. Yeah, but amazing the, the, the,
2: the comics magazine.
1: There you go, comics magazine, amazing heroes. And he mentioned one of the two characters in the mention there that didn't get into who's who was called He Who Never Dies. We mentioned it. He says actually came back as an Animal Man, Vixen, Moana, Beast villain in the Grant Morris of Animal Man. He and he does actually die. The, the He Who Can Never Die actually dies. And when he does, he is actually deconstructed from the finished art to pencils to thumbnails to ovals. Uh Grant Morrison did some really cool stuff in Animal Man. So uh, that was a great, great bit. And uh he put on Twitter that he uh, he had a dollar box find. He found the ambush bug History of the DC Universe issue, so uh that we covered last time. Or yeah, a couple episodes ago. So super fun. I heard from our buddy Anthony Durso, the toy room, who makes the most amazing Mega boxes. Oh, yeah. I think I got uh he was kind enough of to send me the Firestorm one. So boss. And he says, um, he was talking about just the, all these throwaway characters who didn't make it into who's who. And he said, how many characters have been, uh, who have been deemed throwaway have been dusted off and revised by writers such as Jeff Johns, Graham Morrison, and others? I've always been the philosophy that there's no bad characters, just bad writing. And then he talks about his loose leaf edition. He says, I had two binders for the loose leaf. The white one had the heroes and the supporting cast. Well, the black one had the villains and the supernatural. I recently got the Perez binder, which I'm using for all the covers, and a new giant binder for all of the pages, which are still broken down by color tab racks me up. <laughs> uh,
2: Jeff R sent us a message. Did I miss something, or did you not actually get around to giving your own picks for most egregious submission of the series? Midway through, you said you'd get to it later, but unless I missed something, you never did. Yeah, you're right, Jeff.
1: We both forgot. We totally messed yeah, that one up. Yeah, <laughs> I <just> completely <laughs> forgot. It.
2: My entry is always always sugared Spike. That's always my answer. Uh, my,
1: mine, Commissioner Gordon.
2: Well, you got your you got your wish later on. Then. Really? Yeah, because he gets the oh. listing. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Jeff submits a couple of characters that should be should have been given, and he mentions villains. Slimmer pickings here, but I'll go with Spirit King. That's a tough one, but I'm going to have to agree with Jeff on that because Spirit King did kill Mr. Terrific. And even though he basically only appeared to, to kill Mr. Terrific, if you bump off a member of the Justice Society – I think you deserve a listing in Uzu. You, you've you contributed one way or the other to the DC universe. So.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. Now, he he appeared in the 40s too, Fighting Flash, though, before that, though, right?
2: I No, I think Spirit King is a, oh, is a, a Jerry a creation. Conway creation ah. who said, oh, he's been around. He's been my foe since the 40s. But I think Spirit okay. King, I think he was created by Conway just to bump off
1: Mr. Triffin. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we heard from Daniel Cynical Adams, uh, one half of the duo that has, does our theme song for the Who's Who podcast, because uh, some people took him to task for the inclusion of certain characters in the theme song that don't actually have Who's Who entries. So he says, I feel obligated to respond to criticism of the theme song. He says, uh, Woozy Winks was one that they say didn't get into Who's Who, but it's in the song. He says, Woozy Winks is fun to say. Uh, number two, I couldn't let an opportunity to include him in a song go to waste. Number three, Woozy should have had an entry in Who's Who. And number four, creative license, bitches. <laughs> I love that. And then he also said uh, about us renumbering the, uh, the podcast, because a lot of people want us to continue on with Who's Who number 28 or whatever, 29. He said, you guys are resetting the numbering? What are you, Marvel? Which was funny. I then responded by saying, creative license, bitch. So uh, We heard from Dale Russell. He says, you guys have finished the first part now. And as you continue on the Who's Who goodness, or I will find you. so a threat thanks for that pal heard from Wolfgang Hartz he said in defense of Carmen Infantino not all of his entries were hands on hips his early work for who's who was more varied like detective chimp in volume 6 for example anyway fun episode as always I give 10 cyanides out of 10 (laughs) what a great way to use a mort that's a good way I heard from our buddy Tim Wallace Uh, again Tim does the blue beetle blog and um Looking back, that I forget anybody. Okay, so Tim does the Blue Beetle blog, and he says, I love that the D.C. Charlton House ad poster that we covered. I may have to post it on my blog, um, Cord Industries, again, if he ever goes back to Blue Beetle. Because he, he's spending time covering other Scarab-related characters, by the way, which is kind of cool. Uh, heard from Zoom Yukinori. There's, uh, there's this huge thing that they talked about as far as Wonder Woman in the Golden Age. Like, uh, one thing they talk about here is uh, Glop, and we <laughs> mentioned him, but she apparently had another imp character named Shaggy the Leprechaun which I think is hysterical. And I think that's, I want to see that. Somebody send me a picture, please. And then he talks about how the Mopey story was disavowed, but Mark Wade paid a brilliant homage to it in the life story of the flash. And also Gorilla Grodd. There was this entry about where the, um, where they came from another planet and all this stuff. Anyway, uh, they retconned it in DC superstars, number 14, where they claimed the super gorillas were aliens from a planet Kalor who used Hal Jordan's power ring to transport them to earth. Anyway, that's another one that got uh, disavowed. Thank goodness. Um, all right, <laughs> he mentions
2: Mind Grabber Kid reappeared in Grant Morrison's. Do we even really need to read any
1: further? Oh
2: <laughs> Well, I just mean, of course, he appeared in Grant Morrison's something. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. even matter what book it is.
1: By the way, the majority of these comments come from uh, Firestormfan in the in the comment section on these episodes. Go, ahead. we're just cherry picking certain things. These things are like reading the greatest annotated notes ever. Because like, Zoom drops so much knowledge in here that we don't even have time to cover. And so, so does Anthony Durso and, and you know, Chris and everyone does. So go check out these out, guys, in, in the comment threads. They're just wonderful, wonderful reading.
2: Yeah, the, uh, yeah, this feedback section is not meant to be all the coverage we got. It's just meant to be the highlights of, of the amazing conversations that go on.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we hit everything, we'd be it'd be like a seven hour podcast. Yeah, so because yeah. you guys are that amazing, so we heard from our buddy Cisco Siskoid from Cisco's blog at Geekery and the Legion of Superbloggers. He says Ambush Bug, yes, 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 yes. And my first issue was also number three, and I tracked down the first two issues uh, at a Seven Eleven in Texas that summer, and ha- Texas. What are you doing in Texas? You're in Canada. Anyway, um, that summer, and had to have them, even though one of them was stained by Slurpee juice. <laughs> Ew. It, but then he says it's somehow perfect like that. And I totally agree. If you're gonna get a, a comic in the 80s from your childhood or from 7-Eleven, if it's got a Slurpee stain on it, that's
2: just it's just totally. No, boss. I know I totally agree that I do something about the word juice. Oh. <laughs> it's sort of just I'm objecting to that. The I was just lo- the juice is loose. I was this drinking is- a Slurpee while we were recording this, so I really got into the zone.
1: And then you're going to have a latte after this. I don't believe this. All right. Anyway, um, they talk about uh, – there's a a huge conversation. I can really – I'm just going to hit the highlights here. I don't even know if I'm going to do that. But there's a huge debate on Firestorm Fan about Wonder Woman and the Impossible Tales – with Wonder Girl and Wonder Tot and all that stuff, um, there's some discussion about it. some of time, some of the times it was Hippolyta looking into a magic sphere. Um, some of them were like little; she was almost watching home movies. Then they talk about these impossible tales where, which were later co-labeled Wonder Woman Family, where they have all three versions of Wonder Woman appearing together. So Wonder Woman, Wonder Tot, and Wonder Girl all appeared in stories together. Really, not much of an explanation. They were just hanging out together, and it was considered an impossible tale. And then they were referred to. They were said. They were later on. They said these these were Wonder Woman's sisters instead of past selves of her, and uh, that maybe. What confused Bob Haney and Murray Bolton off into believing Wonder Girl was an individual character and putting it in the Teen Titans, potentially? Who knows? More likely,
2: Bob Haney just didn't give a shit.
1: Probably. But it makes for interesting reading. You should read these these again. I'm a Firestorm fan. I heard from our buddy Bradley Null. Uh, He was kind enough to post a bunch of pictures from the Ambush Bug series uh, episode on his uh, Instagram. And you tagged it with uh, Fire and Water Podcast. Or FW Podcast. Thank you for that. Philemon wrote
2: us, he says, for what it's worth, Binky is supposed to be trapped in one of the dome cities in Convergence, along with Sugar and Spike. If he does show up, it will justify all the money I am putting into this event. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, Philemon. That's that's good to know. I'm very happy to hear that Binky and Sugar and Spike are, are out
1: there in the current DCU. Now, you typically, Philemon says the exact opposite of logic, but that one actually works. No, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. did, it, did a good job it, here. Yeah. We heard from Diablo Frank. He says, um, we're talking about characters that got missed in Who's Who. He says he uses Zook which was uh, Martian Manhunter, his little sidekick guy, as my catch-all example of Martian Manhunter's slights in Who's Who, since he appeared far more times than many other entry choices, even as a cover-featured co-star in Ho- of House of Mystery. Then, uh, Now, Frank writes a dissertation, as usual here, just so you know. Another reason to go out there and read it, so I'm having to really cherry-pick some stuff. He, goes, uh, he, he called us out. He said, You guys missed Argyle! From ambush Bug, his Who's Who entry, which appeared either in the Stocking Stuffer or in the second edition of uh, Ambush Bug, Son of Ambush Bug. Anyway, he was miffed when DC forgot to include him the first time. So you, buy, you boys are playing with fire, or at least highly flammable polycotton blend. Um, you know what I intended? Yeah, we, we meant to do it, yeah. We totally meant to cover Argyle. Um, someone even sent me a scan of it so that I wouldn't forget, and then I forgot. So. We'll, well, sorry, well, sorry. we'll
2: stick him back in when we do those little back pages, Who's Who listings that we're going to Or
1: when at. we do the special edition.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Lucas style. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, congratulations to Rob on completing his crusade for validation of Sir print." I'm just happy Colorhold got a mention as well. Yeah, as I said, my life is, is validated thanks to Zoom appearing in my own Surprint.
1: Um, I think actually he's talking about Dan Juergens. When Dan Juergens validated you calling it a Surprint.
2: Oh, well, that's, well, yeah, no, Right. That's true. I'm just saying, but I'm now also in a serpent.
1: So That's true. Yeah. You're, you're, you're just all kinds of surprinty. You know That's what? Right. That should be your supervillain name, Serprint. <laughs> that should be. I it. like Color
2: Hold. I, as a villain name, Color Hold is better.
1: Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, and this is some interesting, insightful thoughts from Frank, which is un, unusual, so he must have been tripping, uh, about Jack Kirby. He says it was extremely common for children of the 70s and 80s to hold Jack Kirby in disdain. Well, lauding contemporary artists who owed him an enormous debt, I got right with Kirby once I checked out his New Gods and Silver Age work. We all have our um, our pet artistic peeve, so I can understand the lack of enthusiasm for the King, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I had trouble with Jack Kirby when I was a kid. A lot of people had trouble with Jack Kirby and their kid, and it wasn't until I read New Gods that I really got him. So I think that's a it's sort of an insightful comment that a lot of kids back then. And he uses an analogy of basically Elvis Presley. Like a lot of people nowadays don't appreciate Elvis Presley, but you know he's the King, literally. All right, he says, uh, He goes, I'm, I'm looking forward to the loose-leaf coverage, but it'll be burdensome for me to follow along as I have my sets divided into folders by moral alignment, but also by approximate color coding. I made some corrections. I think I have three thick binders since I bought my, um, since I bound in my Mayfair versions, too. But see, I don't think I have a complete set of either the DC or Mayfair editions, including at least one where I got a partial volume. Okay, I'm not, I don't need to read all this stuff. Um, but he says, um, I did... I did separate out female characters, and I did do some groupings by teams, particularly the Legionnaires, which can, constitutes temporal segregation as well. <laughs> I can't wait for the loose leaf. We're going to have so much fun with that. Like, and I'm, we're having fun with the updates now. But. I like the idea of breaking up the Huzu
2: characters by moral alignment. I'm pretty sure <laughs> Steve Ditko does the same thing. We got uh, Max Romero from It's Plastic Man says, thanks to the latest Huzu episode of the, Huzu, of the Firewater podcast. I'm now craving some Ambush Bug and a teriyaki burger. Well, luckily there's a recipe on how to make them in the Amish Bug miniseries, so there Thank you go, know, Max. You're set. Thanks
1: for that. Awesome. By the way, I didn't mention Frank hosts the uh, Marvel Superheroes podcast. You should check out Rolled Spine podcast. They have a bunch out there, uh, like stuff on Independence. They them just shooting the the breeze. So check those out. Then um, now we're going to cover the feedback on the history of the DC Universe episode. Um, and I, I came right out, like, um, like the minute the episode dropped and, and put out there as fast as I could, before anyone even mentioned it, I realized that 15 minutes after we finished recording, we forgot to mention the history of the DC Universe portfolio. Duh. So, um, yeah. And uh, so, there you go. I came clean on that one. Then I also want to give a shout-out to some other folks that have covered History of the DC Universe on their podcast. What I did was I didn't listen to it, li- listen to these in advance of our episode recording. I didn't want to sort of color what I was going to say, so we recorded ours. Then afterwards, I went and listened to Michael Bailey on Views from the Long Box, episode 146, where he covers History of the DC Universe. I listened to the Fan Holes podcast, uh, episode 92, which is by our buddy... Um... Derek Crab. Thank you very much. I was... Had to catch my breath. So, by Derek Crab. I really enjoyed the fan holes coverage, by the way. It was really good. Uh, and then Legion of Substitute Podcasters covered it on episode uh, 316 and 319. So, if you want more, uh, more history of the DC Universe, that's where you can get it. Heard from Mark Sweeney, he says, um, Harbinger's history that she launched into space for safekeeping was almost immediately intercepted by the Manhunters. Because I said we wouldn't see that history ball of information until Infinite Crisis with Donna Troy. So he points out that no, the Manhunters grabbed it for Millennium. It was uh, the well of knowledge that the androids used to infiltrate the lives of Earth's heroes and led up to Millennium. Several people actually wrote in to point that out. Thank you for that, folks. And now I know why post-traumatic stress disorder actually occurs. So, Millennium. Um, and he goes, also, I, this, is, this is so exciting. I can't believe I didn't, I didn't know this. He goes, also, can't listen to a podcast that mentions Balloon Buster so prominently without pimping my blog. He has a Balloon Buster blog. Oh, my gosh. It's imthegun.blogspot.com. How awesome is that? Uh, He spent considerable time in the first five months on the adventures of Steve Savage, the Balloon Buster. Kind of started as a dare to myself, considering Balloon Buster's obscurity, but those old stories, while few in number, were very high quality, written and drawn by some of the best in the biz. So definitely check that out. We also heard from uh, our buddy Between the Pages, who gave me a heads up on the Balloon Buster blog. So exciting. (laughs) Heard from our buddy Luke Dobb from Dobb Creative, and who does... He's done tons of stuff for our shows. He's done songs. He's done artwork. He's done all kinds of stuff for the Fire and Water podcast. He said, I want to say thanks to you, to both of you, and the Fire and Water community at large for being such a support and encouragement for me these past four years. Um, and I'm just pulling out snippets now. He bumped into Tom Zoller, who listens to a lot of our shows, whose uh, uh, artists, Loving Capes, Rob uh, and him were arch nemesis in, in college. It's easy um, to bump into Tom. He's very big. He is. He's tall, very tall man. Anyway, uh, they, they bumped into each other at C2E2, and they got talking about the Fire and Water podcast. And um, what, he, what, what he says here, he says, four years ago, um, Luke walked away from his full-time self-employment. He realized that he needed to stop waiting for the world to give him permission to make the kinds of art he wanted to make. And then he says, through our blogs and the Fire and Water podcast, we've given him a safe place to play. He's developed styles, written songs, and basically created the body of work he has today inspired by and in your company. Wow. Such a touching personal message. I mean, just got me right in the... Luke is so good at getting me right in the feels. I just, wow. Great guy. Really great guy. So, heard from uh, Michael Ridge. He wrote in. He said, uh, back when you guys were reviewing volume 26, or sorry, volume 24, Shag made a comment that he couldn't see how you could write a continuing series about Matt Savage trail boss. Okay, to be fair, I was going for a joke. But anyway, uh, he says, my immediate reaction was to say to myself, hasn't Shag ever watched Rawhide? Then, of course, I remembered that Rawhide left the air about 50 years ago. <laughs> now, to be fair, Michael, I do know what Rawhide is. I don't know if I've ever actually seen an episode, oddly enough. But, of course, you know, dun dun Rawhide. Anyway, um, Rawhide was one of the Western series that first aired back in 1969, a few months before Matt's first appearance as a cover character. The television series followed a trail boss in his second-in-command for seven full seasons. Then he says Matt Savage grabbed the premise and most of the supporting characters from the TV series. I think that's a hoot. That they just totally, you know, stole the idea of the supporting characters for their comic. That is hysterical. Cracked me up. I heard from my buddy David Gutierrez, who's my co-host on the Ultraverse podcast, when we actually do episodes, which is not very often. Um, he said, <laughs> he gave a recap of the History of the DC Universe episode, but really it could be applied to pretty much any episode we've ever done. And here it is, folks. This is just a perfect summary. We should just put this on iTunes as our summary. This is Shag... This is shag... <laughs> He says, Shag mentioned he thought some girls were hot and Rob waxed nostalgic about World War II. (laughs) (laughs) That is the perfect summation of every episode. I showed those Jerry's a thing or two. (laughs) She's hot. Alright, we heard from our buddy again Tom Panarese uh, again um, He says, I always thought, oh, no, here's good Because I, I got on the case saying "How does? Why do they talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths In the history of the DC Universe If it never happened? How can they talk about it? <laughs> Well, I mean, they could talk about the Crisis, but not parallel worlds it, it, They shouldn't do that, right? And Tom wrote back, sort of no-prized it He says, I've always thought of Harbinger's coverage Of the Crisis, as the Crisis on the Infinite Earths Was her way of breaking from the story For a couple of pages And relating history that only she she knew as a way to preserve things, and then he says, "After all, the prologue to history of the DC universe was in Crisis itself, called the Monitor tapes, which ran along the bottom pages of issue number ten. So perhaps she's doing this all deliberately and is not a mistake. So that's eh, pretty fair. to yeah, no surprise that I'm giving that. that. Yeah, yep. good job with that. Uh, probably took him like a week to come up with that, but anyway. Uh, and then he <laughs> says, the mis- we, we I asked you, and you were supposed to have an answer, and you didn't because you're useless. There was a ship that crashed in the mountains in the beginning of who's, uh, of the history of the DC universe.'" And it says, it's there for 10,000 years. And we speculated what it was, and they never told us in the comic. So he says, the mysterious ship that crashed in Alaska, and whose pilot lay in ice for many years, has to be Asriel, the winged guy who was in New Teen Titans at the time. Yeah, he's definitely a Mort. But I'm pretty sure that New Teen Titans, and probably even Tales of Teen Titans, were still selling well enough for him to warrant the attention. I would probably argue with that. But the fact that Marv Wolfman wrote all of this, right, right. yeah, he's going to get what he wants.
2: Uh, he says, uh, his postscript is Guys, I think I can help provide the most random Tumblr dedicated to a character. It hasn't been updated since 2011, but I give you Terry, love you long time. Terry is com. And that is, in fact. Terry is so very. Terry is so very. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> Terry is so very Tumblr.com, which is in fact dedicated to Terry Long from the Teen Titans. Have <laughs> you read some of them?
1: I did. <laughs> They're hysterical. And now I don't think Tom's claiming credit for this. No, no, no. He's just, no, no. I mean, he's just kind of finding, finding it. Finding it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Holy crap. It's so funny. So definitely, again, it's Terry is so very. Check it out. Uh, again, heard from our buddy Zoom. Yukonori, he says, uh, the, he, he drops some more knowledge here. Man, this guy knows a lot. It says, the guard of Nanda Panbot is named Taj Z. Because I, I was like, who is that guy? And he was created by Neil Adams in Strange Adventures number 216. And the spiritual entity is named Rama Kushna." And uh, talks about the male and female sides of that character. And I mentioned the smoking hot redhead in the I-Vampire spot in, in History of DC Universe. And he points out that um, was Mary Seward, who's known as Queen, Mary Queen of Blood. And I actually, once he said that, I remember that because that was mentioned in his Who's Who entry. So He says, the bald guy with the Injustice Society that we sort of were perplexed about, we thought maybe it was Lex Luthor or something, couldn't figure it out. He says, it's the Golden Age Flash foe Thinker before he had his Thinker's Cap. which Because he didn't get that till Flash, the two worlds. Huh. Who would have thought? Who would have thinked? Who would have thinkered? Yeah, that's going nowhere. Anyway, uh, the two unknown All-Star Squadron characters are Mag- Magno the Magnetic Man, who is the blonde guy with the blue cape, and the Invisible Hood, not the Silver Ghost, who was actually a villain that fought the Freedom Fighters.
2: Yeah, you know what? It's funny. I said that, and I knew it was sort of wrong when I said it. I realized that I meant the same Invisible Hood. I really did, but yeah.
1: Nope. Performer Buddy Earth to Chris again, uh, he said that the two splash pages of Superman and Batman with Robin are perhaps the greatest encapsulation of either character ever published. The text along with the art gives me goosebumps every time I read it.
2: Uh, he says the bonus features in the hardcover really put the book over for me, and I learned a lot about DC's history through this. I do think the Golden Age Superman art is actually the work of Fred Ray, but I believe DC screwed up with the credit there. Yeah, Chris is right because uh, he mentions Ray drew some of the most Ray drew some of the most iconic Superman covers at the time, and famously drew the S shield that would later be adopted as the look of the Earth Two Superman. That Dick Sprang piece cemented my love for Sprang. He is to Batman what Carl Barks is to Donald Duck, the good Batman artist. You guys will get to some who's who work by him when you get to the D.C. annuals from 1989. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Heard from our buddy Little Russell Burbage from the Legion of Super Bloggers, uh, He points out the Bill Cabbage cover of History of the DC Universe book I have is also in the DC History Portfolio. Nice. Heard from Jim Ball. He said, really enjoyed, uh, or maybe it's Bal. He said, I really enjoyed the last podcast regarding the History of the DC Universe. I remember buying these books off the rack and have been stunned at how great the artwork was in this format. Perez is a master. And he also goes on to mention the portfolio, so thank you for that. Heard from Kyle Benning, uh, the guy who runs the podcast Kingside Comics Great, uh, um, Size Comics, giant-sized fun. Man, I just couldn't come up with that. He's also part of the Legion of Superbloggers. And he talks about the Atomic Knight and the Atomic Knights. They have a very strange history. talks about the original appearances were based on World War III that happened in October 1986 that lasted for 13 days. We remember that, right? was a comic from the 1960s, so that was 26 years in the future. Then DC Comics Presents number 57 comes along just three years before that nuclear holocaust was supposed to happen, so they retconned the events to say that the Atomic Knights Avengers were actually just a computer simulation run by the real Gardner Grail, the founding member and leader of the Atomic Knights. and Because uh, that, that was referenced sort of in the history of the DC Universe. And, um, you know, that sounds a lot like what happened with the um, Super Suns, doesn't it? So, <laughs> And he says, regarding the portfolio of the Freaks piece by John Byrne, because there, there's a piece in there by John Byrne in the, in the history of the DC Universe portfolio, which isn't anybody from the DC Universe. It's like, what is that? And it says there's a sneak preview of something to come. Well, it never came along. So that Freak's piece apparently was the characters that eventually would become the next Men that he developed for Dark Horse. Look at that. He'd originally planned to make him a piece of the DCU, but still be creator-owned. But, um, uh, but his work and development of the concept wouldn't be until after he left DC, but when he went back to Marvel, and then he left Marvel again to find a home with Dark Horse. So, huh, very interesting. Heard from Joe X, who says, uh, Graffiti also did deluxe editions of The Dark Knight Returns and Kingdom Come. I did not know that. And then, Dr. Occult, I asked about what all those different floating images were, and he says, that is called The Seven, which is the group that gave Dr. Occult his powers on his symbol. Okay, and he <laughs> says, uh, there was the question issue with Rorschach.
2: Vic tried to emulate him and got his ass handed to him. I guess O'Neill's question just wasn't absolutist
1: enough. <laughs> I uh, heard from Anthony Durso again. He says, I never – talking about the hardcover the that I was reading from of the History of the DC Universe. He says, I never sent away for the poster. Like an idiot, I was more concerned about keeping the original postcard since facsimiles would not be accepted as part of the book. I don't know why I bothered because my book didn't even come with the History of the DC Universe logo pin like it was supposed to. A fact that I didn't discover until I got home. My response to that would be, there's a postcard and a pin? What the hell? Mine didn't have that, but then again, I bought mine used. So, but still, I was like, oh, I could have got a poster. I wonder if DC's got any laying around. Anyway, uh, and he said he thinks that, I mentioned, I thought it was unusual that Robin Hood and Three Musketeers got mentioned. He pointed out that DC used to publish the adventures of both of them. So maybe that's why they got mentioned.
2: Uh, Michael Chiascaro writes, Embarrassing confession. As a young boy, I bought the first issue of this when it came out. Then for reasons only known to the 11-year-old me, I never picked up a second issue of a two-issue limited series. Oi." It certainly wasn't a major commitment of time or money, so I have to chuck it up to the vagaries of youth, i.e., the stupidity of the young comics collector. <laughs> I like the idea of him reading one of two and be like, nah, this isn't going anywhere, and just bailing on it.
1: Well, for a lot of collectors, number one wasn't as exciting. I mean, I've even heard people say that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, We heard from Count Druncula of the Black Canary blog and the Secret Origins uh, Black Canary podcast as well. Flowers and Fishnets. He's got the Secret Origins podcast. He's got a Star Wars podcast. The guy's just horning himself out everywhere. Anyway, he says um, he talked about George Perez. Because you had sort of postulated that isn't everyone a fan of George Perez? Like nobody really hates George Perez. And he comes forward basically to say that... He likes George Perez's form, but he dislikes his style. And he, and he says, like, he's, he's um, let me see if I can figure this out. Um, he says, I love his line work, but often or not, I'm frustrated by his panel construction and layout. And he talks about Crisis, talks about Titans and Avengers and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of us sort of, he said, you know, his question was, is it possible to love an artist's form while disliking his style, uh, or vice versa? And I came back basically saying, it's impossible to dislike George Perez, you're disqualified from life. Or <laughs> uh, to Chris then said uh, that disliking New Teen Titans is another banishable offense. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Gregor Rougeau talked about how great Perez is. He says, uh, possibly part of the reason he's still popular today are two things. Consistency in his pencils, uh, he's still very, very consistent, and workmanship. He never got the sense that he was cutting corners. So.
2: That's very true.
1: Randy Caldwell over on Twitter uh, also said that George Perez is a god. So, totally agree. Heard from my buddy Keith Samra, who lives on the other side of the planet. He says he loves Perez's artwork, makes me want a monthly comic drawn by him. I don't care what the book is. Throw in Wolfman as a writer, and I'll gladly pay 7 to $8 a month for it. Damn you exchange rates. Heard from Wolf, uh, Wolfgang Hartz. He said uh, in 2003, DC published a JLA to Z. It was J-L-A with a dash, Z, so A to Z, J-L-A to Z, will that be covered as well? Um, the answer to that is no. And the reason why is You're it's pretty much – yeah. it was. it's an art book. I, I actually keep it on the shelf near my who's who, but it's an art book. Um, there's very little text in it, so I, I say no. Then um, he asked about the listener feedback. We got, i got a lot of people who are asking why wasn't there listener feedback in episodes 27 and 28 – uh, or, no, there wasn't 27. I guess yeah, it was we 28. We skipped that... the one. There was this one episode that we skipped. Yeah, and there was like outrage. So sorry. There people. really is. There was. Man, we love you guys. Come on. Then we heard from Zoom Yukinori. I mentioned that the picture of Darkseid, where he's. Uh... Crack, cackling and you know like in the future with the legion era i said it looked like he was holding a nut like a like a you know some sort of like a what do you call it cashew or something like that and he turned it into the wonderful pistachios ad <laughs> and that thing should go viral it's gorgeous love it uh, then we hear from philemon again
2: yes he says excellent addition gentlemen i had a surprisingly large number of thoughts about the podcast let's go number one concerning the film and water podcast rob i'm assuming that my invitation to review citizen Kane with you has been lost in the mail yeah, good assumption, him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he said, My opinions on Brother Blood are the exact opposite of yours, Shag. Color me surprised. He says, I-, I love the character visually. He's one of the most interesting of the New Teen Titans villains, and I love the creep factor that comes with the religious cult gimmick. All right, I'll give him some credit. He's right about some of that stuff. <laughs> He says, you mentioned that it was weird that Our Man was included in the Freedom Fighters, but the whole Freedom Fighter section is a retelling basically of their story in All Star Squadron, and Our Man plays a huge role there. No, I, I totally get that following line. What I meant was the All Star Squadron's story, where Our Man joins the Freedom Fighters, always sat weird with me because he wasn't part of those quality characters. So I just other than to give him, you know, a hook to someone people knew, I didn't I still don't understand why he was included in that group. It just didn't sit well with me. Anyway, it says, Jericho makes an appearance in the history of the DC Universe. I'm sad that he did not get a full-page exploration, as he rightfully deserves, as, as much as Batman and more so, Cap- more so than Captain Marvel. Oh, my gosh. If you guys don't remember what I said earlier, Philemon pretty much says the opposite of what makes sense. And he continues that trend here. Thank you so much. And he t- also took us to task about listener feedback. He goes, what? No listener feedback? I sat through two hours of you prattling about these books, waiting to hear my name mentioned, and nothing! Too funny. Too funny. Her former buddy, Martin Gray, he says, uh, fun episode as ever, but Superman's parents, Jor-El and Kara? Yeah, I totally realized that later. Uh, I, was, I was listening back to the episode because, you know, I like the sound of my own voice. And uh, I did say Jor-El and Kara instead of Jor-El and Lara. I, or I may even, I thought he said Jor-El and Lana. Either way, I knew I said it wrong the minute I, you know, the minute I said it, but oh well. And then he, but he, anyway, reference to Jor-El and Kara, he goes, I did not want to think about it. <laughs> They're from the southern part of Krypton. Right, exactly. Every planet's got a South. Uh, We heard from our buddy Diablo Frank again. He says, I definitely have love... He makes an interesting point here. Again, he must have been on his meds. He says, I definitely have love for George Perez, as evidenced by my using his sketches he did for me as my Twitter icon. But for some reason, I tend to take him for granted. He always does great work, and I've always been exposed to it for as long as I've been reading comics. But he's never been my favorite. I think Perez is actually so good, he starts to turn back around the other way, like the antimatter universe. So bad, it's good. Perez is so essential to comic books that he doesn't register for me emotionally as he ought to. Like the gutters like the gutters in the Z-Formation panel layouts. He exists beyond subjective opinion as an ideal. <laughs> Perez is. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Um, and then he talked about the Aquaman piece in History of the DC Universe, the kal Arthur page. He says, does anyone else hear Luke Dobbs' song, Children of a Lighthouse Keeper, while looking at this page? And then he says he still prefers the Golden Age Orange. He says Robin deserved a full page. And he goes, was this the beginning of Robin being treated as less than one of the most popular and recognizable superheroes on the planet Earth? It could be. Although Robin became
2: pretty big. He had his once, own book. Not too well, long Well, once Tim it. Drake came along, he
1: became pretty big. Right. Um, this is part of what I love about this book, meaning history of the DC Universe, and the post-crisis DCU is its full integration of the Fawcett, quality, and especially the Charlton characters into the shared continuity. Plus, they were still the Charlton versions. So, their history is acknowledged before the heavy revisions soon to come. Yeah. No, definitely agree. Uh, just going to name check a few other people Heard from Lucien Dessar, Zeb Oswald. We heard from Jimmy McGlinchey who, uh, who recommends the Ambush Bug Showcase to anybody by the way uh, doctor Gman of Nerdology Was very kind and gave us a very nice shout out On his Pulp to Pixel podcast Tumblr Heard from Carlos Mucha He said uh, He pointed out the history of the DC Universe is an epilogue To crisis that cannot be separate Of crisis hmm, That's a good observation, I like that Then we had some, uh, we had some fun back and forth With Martin Gray on Twitter where, um, he says, if you really want to give Jericho and Firebrand, uh, a break, wait, hold on. Anyway, he, he basically, he talks about Firebrand, but he makes a mistake. He meant to say Northwind. So what he's trying to say is if you really want to give Jericho and Northwind a break, then punch up, yeah, have a pop at Star Wars. <laughs> anyway, what happens though, we get into this discussion about Firebrand and he's sort of like knocking on Firebrand. I'm like, no, dude, we love Firebrand. She's totally hot. Um... And then he comes back and we go back and forth. But anyway, he's pointing out he thinks the original firebrand, Rod, uh, the brother is hot. And we say that the sister's hot. And he calls this the heterosexual presumption. I like that. That's funny. He says Rod is way hotter. He's even called Rod, which is hysterical. <laughs> then uh, thanks to Professor Alan Quarterbin. Comment. He put out a pic of uh, History of the DC Universe Volume One. If you don't know, Professor Allen runs the Quarter Bin Podcast, and he says, uh, "Guess how much I paid for this one? Come on, guess." Yeah, yeah. Quarter Bin Podcast, guys, put that together. By the way, I failed to mention Martin Gray does um, Too Dangerous for a Girl. Oh gosh, I'm getting the name wrong. Anyway, he has a great blog. I think it's called Too Dangerous for a Girl, and it's like Danger Mart or something like that. Definitely Google that, and you'll find, or look for him on Twitter uh, as Mart Gray, and you'll find a link to his blog there. Then we got some mentions on some other websites. Our thanks to Michael Bailey. Oh, that name, it's like an albatross around my neck. Anyway, he, uh, he mentioned us on his Fortress of Bailey 2 blog, talking about who's who. Thanks to Kyle Benning. He mentioned us on his Crisis on Multiple Earths, uh, posting on his podcast, which is King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Thanks to Professor Alan Quarterbin. He talked about us, or he played our promo on his uh, a relatively geeky podcast over there, the Quarterbin Podcast, where he talked about Free Comic Book Day. And then, thanks to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, where they mentioned us as well. And that is uh, Asedano, which is A S E D A N O dot So, and I, um, I don't know who runs that. I, uh, if you know, if you're a listener of our show and you're part of the Resurrections podcast, please give us a shout out because I'm not familiar with who's running that one. Woo! Man, that was awesome, Rob. Who's Who, Update 87, Volume 1.
2: We're really totally committed rocked. to this. We're really going to do this.
1: We're really going to do this, man. We did the first one. We are, we are trucking. We are on the highway now, folks. We have finished the first leg of the journey, and we are on leg number two. We have got to get this Coors beer to Atlanta <laughs> in time. All right. Well, folks, um, Rob, why don't you tell folks again where they can find some images from this episode or issue?
2: Uh, Fire and the email address is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net and the blog is fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com
1: You can also leave comments on my friend Rob's site I use the term fr- uh, friend loosely you can find that aquamanshrine.net. Um and you can also find him on Google, uh, no, not Google Plus on Tumblr that no, not even Tumblr darn it, you can find him on Twitter and Facebook I use uh, Tumblr for porn and that's it <laughs> A true word has never been spoken um, You can find him on Twitter and Facebook As the Aquaman Shrine You can find me at FirestormFan.com Also on Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, Instagram And some other one what, Google+, maybe? I don't know, whatever And uh, if you want to, to read All the cool comments from the show And leave the cool comments, again, go out to FirestormFan That's where all the hip kids are hanging out So <laughs> I think that's it uh, Until next time, who's next?
0: Aquaman and Superman Animal Man and Plastic Man Firestorm and Nuclear Man Batman and Hawkman 2D Man and Hour Man Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC Who's who? Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, and and Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh, man. We forgot Slipknot.
1: Not all of us can storm a beach or drive a tank, but there's still a way all of us can fight. Who wants to fight like the man, or right, Series E Defense Bonds. Each one you buy is a bullet in the barrel of your best guy's gun.